the movie podcast and the nerds who haunted themselves. I'm Stuart Moraine, and each episode I'm joined by guests to talk about a movie they love and see where the conversation takes us from there. Although we're doing something slightly different to that in this episode. Uh, for this episode, I'm joined by Rob O'Connor as we set out to do our personal rankings of all 25 official Eon Bond films. Although Rob does go rogue and sneak in Never Say Never Again. I'm not going to do all the usual introduction stuff because it's a long episode. We, I toyed with breaking it up and then I thought, you're grown-ups, you can break the episode up yourself if you want to or you can listen to it all through in one go. But it is like three hours of ranking. So with an advanced one on spoilers for all the James Bond films, let's get into the ranking. Hello, Rob. How are you? Commander. I'm doing just lovely, thank you. Marvellous. I'm I'm going to de- I'm I'm going to be impersonating every single one of the James Bond actors tonight, Stuart. If you can stand that. Now I will warn you, my George Lazenby and my Daniel Craig, that that they're they're a work in progress. But the other ones, like, it's it's actually rare that a day goes by in my life where I don't do an impersonation of Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan. Like they they're such or Michael Caine, who isn't even in James Bond, but you know, I mean, he's in it, Chris Files, so I suppose it's Bond adjacent. Yeah. Harry and Saltzman. He was, he was like really good friends with Sean Connery and Roger Moore in real life. And they were hanging out together the whole time in the 70s and 80s. And there's all these pictures of them just like drinking cigar, drinking cigars, drinking brandy and smoking cigars and living life. Yeah. It's uh, super cool. Fly on the wall at those parties. Never mind the film sets, just at the parties. Well, I imagine they're probably a lot more tedious than they actually seem in the pictures. <laughs> I was always the better one, Roger. Well, no, let's not it's, get into that so yes. early, Sean. What about me? What about my spy film? No one came and saw it. Okay, that's enough of that. Yeah, so what we're going to do with this episode is we're going to go through our Bond rank. I did a rewatch this year of all 25, and I watched um, Everything or Nothing again today just to get the Bond juices flowing again. I suppose to kick it off, so what are your Bond memories watching the films? Uh, Bond memories, right. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, Batman is kind of my number one thing. Superman's my number two. Batman was introduced to me by my mother. James Bond is kind of my number three thing, very close to Batman Superman. And my dad introduced me to James Bond. He watched James Bond growing up. He had this story about watching Dr. No at a, um, they projected Dr. No in the local youth club thing. And he won 30 shillings uh, at a little raffle they were having. And it was a big day for him. It was one of his favorite films growing up. And he had the famous iconic uh, Corgi Aston Martin DB5, and he used to tell me about this, and I was just transfixed. It sounded like the coolest toy ever. Years later, I got to get the one they reissued in the 90s. Um, so I was always a big fan. I remember watching Never Say Never Again. <laughs> it was probably one of the first ones I saw. And For Your Eyes Only, I remember, was on ITV, like in the early, early, early 90s, before Goldeneye ever came out. Saw those two. Um, rented Goldeneye, really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, uh, they, they were constantly doing Bond seasons, not only on ITV, but here on the Irish channel, RTE one, they would have a Bond movie on every week and you just, you just watch them all like Sean Connery, Roger Moore. Like it, it didn't, it never occurred to me as a kid that these were old movies. Like I just, I always loved them. And I always remember thinking they were great and nineties kids out there. Anyone who hears the word James Bond, a lot of nineties kids will follow up with junior oh yeah james bond jr yeah that was a that was huge like it was way bigger than people realized like there was books there was cartoons there was the toys you know um for the longest time i thought q's name was actually iq because of the james bond jr cartoon i think that's largely forgotten because barbara broccoli's done her best to bury it hasn't she She because it it was a michael g wilson joint more than it 
I I suspect that was a lot more popular than the common narrative leads you to believe. I, I think lots of people really, really came to the franchise through that show. Um, well, I mean, it kept yeah. it going during the 90s because, I mean, I was... Yeah. We watched them on ITV. They used to be on ITV on a Saturday night, seemingly, so that was the big thing. We'd watch whatever Bond films on. I remember yeah. Man with the Golden Gun always being on in particular. Um, mainly because Nick Knack freaked me out as a kid. Um and then when we used to go to my grandparents in the summer, when they'd look after us during the summer holidays, they'd just chuck a Bond film. They'd take off the telly. So mm-hmm. never really watched them in any order. Never really occurred to me that it was different people playing Bond kind of thing. It was always yeah, yeah, yeah. Connery or Roger Moore. Uh, my dad didn't like Timothy Dalton, so we never watched the Timothy Dalton ones. Mm. And for whatever reason, well, I mean, probably reputation, the George Lazenby one never really seemed to be on. Um, yeah, I... And obviously this is pre Pierce Brosnan and then so between 89 and 95 I didn't have a bond I had James Bond Jr but sort of grew out of that and then yeah didn't have a bond so it wasn't until 96 when I caught License to Kill on telly that I got back into bond and it sort of reignited it then bought GoldenEye and all that VHS series I think we may have taped License to Kill off the telly in 1996 so it could have been the exact same broadcast that you saw (laughs) because I saw that one as a kid and I, I just thought it I was mesmerized by it. It was so cool. And it was the first kind of hint I ever had as a kid that, oh, no, wait, this guy's an anti-hero. He's not like this perfect, nice guy. Like, he does kind of mean, cruel things sometimes. And I remember being six and seven and thinking, that's cool. I like that, you know? Yeah, um, so I remember I, Dalton. I remember when it premiered on ITV, my dad tried to watch it and it got to the bit where M confronts him and revokes his license to kill. And my dad thought he kicked M in the face. I was like, I'm not watching this. Bond doesn't do that. Turned it off. We're not a country club, 007. <laughs> can't, can't do a great Bob Brown now. That's such a good scene. God help you, Commander. I suppose we'll sort of talk a bit more as we go through it. Um, like I say, we're going to go through our rankings. So the way we're going to do it is that we won't go into details on the film until it comes up on both our lists. So you know, my 25, we'll wait until it comes up on your list and then we'll talk about it kind of thing. Okay, so at 25 for me, and I'll preempt this with, I've done it based on how much I enjoy the film and where I can, the merits of it as a film as well. I'm not yes. a film scholar, so um, it's based more on personal enjoyment. And I will also say that I enjoy all the Bond films. So even the one ranked at the bottom doesn't mean I think it's a bad film. I, I would echo all of that exactly. Yeah. And, and in fact, it was harder for me to do my ranking this time than ever because I basically don't really have any ill will towards any of the films, any of them at all. No, that's it. So, it's amazing how much it changes. No, absolutely. And and I, I, I should have said this at the top. I think it is actually the best film franchise ever. Like, yeah. It, it's bar none. Star Wars, come at me. Fight me, bro. Was it even a bad Bond film is a great film. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll, we'll get into that as we go along. But I, yeah. No. So saying that, my number 25 is Spectre. Okay, respectable, respecterable enough. <laughs> uh, it was me, James, the author of All Your Pain. Uh, my 26, oh, uh, because I am including the film that shall not be named. Um, my 26 is Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, that's fair. Cool. Uh, all right, then my 24, and I know I got some shit on this when it was bottom of my list as I was doing the rewatching and posting it on Twitter, is A View to a Kill. Ooh, okay, wow. Now, mine is, my A View to a Kill is a lot higher on my list, but um, my 25 is uh, The World's Not Enough. Ah. And my the first Bond movie I saw in the cinema, but it's yeah. my 25 now. Okay, my 23 is Man with the Golden Gun. My 24 is Spectre. Okay, do to, so... Do we have to talk about Spectre We, we can talk about Spectre now, then. Yeah, I... This is possibly the Daniel Craig one that I changed the most on. I remember really liking it when I saw it in the cinema. 
Mm. Partly because I was just so giddy that the gun barrel was back at the beginning. Yeah, same. People look at me like I'm mental when they're like, Skyfall was great, wasn't it? I was like, well, the fucking gun barrel wasn't where it should be. And I generally thought that if they didn't put it back in for Spectre, then it was going to stay at the end of the films forever. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, I'll freely admit I'm a little OCD and I don't like change. But yeah, so I was quite giddy after that. But certainly rewatching it this time, it all just feels a little bit flat. I don't know if it's the score. Yep. There's no bombast to the score. So during that car chase, it's very flat. What should be exciting and exhilarating just feels a bit meh. Totally. It, it, and, and remember that this is the only Daniel Craig film that didn't have the, that didn't have everything stacked against it. Like this is this is the one that should have been like a victory lap. It should have just been nothing but net. But it, somehow it just doesn't quite. It's it's like it looks. Well, I was gonna say it looks great, but it actually doesn't look great. There's a really weird kind of brown color grade on it that just makes it look really kind of dreary. Um, yeah, there's bits that look nice, but it's just yeah, it's like, missing something. I, I I like some of the production design. I like I, I like the suits. I like all the clothes. I think Daniel Craig wears a white dinner jacket in it that is just he looks like a million dollars in that scene. Uh, I like uh, Dave Batista, even though he doesn't really have enough to do. Yeah, his scene where he like challenges the guy for the job by fucking crushing his eyes into his yeah. And that's a that's a cool idea. A guy with metal nails, like lean into that. That we barely even see them. I I don't know. Yeah, the biggest problem with it, obviously, ugh, look, we've all heard it all said before, but Blofeld being his half brother or something like the biggest problem I have with it is not that it's a bad idea; it's that they don't do anything with it. But he finds out that he's this foster brother thing or whatever. And then by the end of the film, they, they they never reference it again. Like it's it's like he's just his old classic enemy. Like the, the the family element to it is is immediately gone once you find out about it. Yeah, I thought that was a bit of shit when I watched it, and then it was when people started reminding me that that's the Doctor Evil lost in powers thing as well. Yeah, I, I was I, like, I t- I, why would they not swerve that completely? Then My, there was a time where they would have spotted something like that from a spoof and been kind of like, yeah, no, no, we got to swerve that idea completely. And that was the whole thing. It's like, oh, we can't do this, this, and this because Austin Powers ruined it forever. Why would you do something that Austin Powers came up with? Like, my friend, I remember telling my friend, oh no, he, he was like, well, surely that's something from the books. Like that, that was in the James Bond books originally. And I was like, no, no, it wasn't. They came up. So he was like, so you're telling me Austin Powers did the thing about them being brothers before James Bond? I was like, yeah. And he was he was dumbfounded when he heard this. He was like, what? It's it's uh, again. Look, I. I don't hate Spectre, though. There are people who hate it and they think it's a, a, a truly bad film. I don't think it's a truly bad film. It's just kind of the action. As you said, the score, like that that plane chase where the plane comes crashing through, like where if there was ever a time where we need the Bond team just yeah. there and it was right there, like a big David Arnold. Like, and it's just, I don't know. Like, I... I'm a big defender of the Craig era. Like, I will defend it to the hilt. I think what they did was really interesting. I think he's one of the best James Bonds ever. And I'm so glad that it, all five of those films exist. But Spectre's the only one where I'm kind of like, what? And also, the James Bond theme being so lacking throughout all five of the films. that That's the only decision they made where I'm kind of like, that, that, what? I don't know what you Yeah, it, I mean, like, it we'll get into it. It made sense with Casino Royale. And then... After that, you're like, no, it should be fucking blaring all the time. Like, it's the best theme tune ever, like, in any film. Like, just use it all the time. And Spectre, they should have, because one of the best things about Spectre is Daniel Craig is playing classic movie James Bond in that one, I think, more than any of the other ones he's in. It's like they didn't know what to do with the tonal shift. 
where they wanted to go a bit because like you say it's possibly the most traditional bond feel that and no time to die for the craig era and i don't hate the craig era either i just they're possibly ones i'd rewatch the least yeah and and this will come up again but i i've recently rewatched i'd say probably 18 or 19 of the films I haven't touched the Craig era, not because I don't want to watch them. It's just because they're all two and a half hours long. And I'm kind of like, you know, you've really got to be in the mood for a month. You have to real sit yourself down and really make an appointment to watch them. And like, to be honest, it's the same with plenty of other franchises. Like I rarely rewatch Superman the movie because it's like two hours and 20 minutes or something. Whereas Superman four is 90 minutes. (laughs) You're in, you're out. So and that's the case with a lot of the older bonds. Like they're they're just quick. You just throw them on, and like even if you don't make it the whole way through, you lash it back on in the morning and watch the last whatever twenty five minutes, and you're done. You know, there's Whereas... an exoticness to the older ones as well, isn't there? That even though they're places where you can easily get to now, there's it's a time and a place that doesn't exist anymore. I, I was thinking about this as well. Like I don't know if you really put a gun to my head and said, name all the countries Daniel Craig's James Bond goes to. I don't know if I could think of them all. And, like, I don't think I could think of all the ones Pierce Brosnan goes to either. Or even, I I think they kind of shifted a bit in the Moore era where they started becoming, like, globe-trotting as opposed to just travelogue, like the older ones where he'd go to a country and the books where he'd go to a country. I, I... that's something or we're kind of going off topic a bit, but that's something I, I would like them to kind of get back to is pick a location and stick to it. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. It's um, the other thing with Spectre for me is watching the old MI6 building go up from the Brosnan era. Yeah, the new one's a bit shit, isn't it? Like yeah. the, the Vauxhall Cross. I went there with my girlfriend one time um, when we were in London and it's just such an epic looking building. It's so cool. Like um and the new one just looks so nondescript and it just looks like it could be any sort of cgi vancouver building from yeah. steel or something like it's yeah it's just you know just a weird sort of nostalgia thing for the 90s seeing that building mm. get blown up i know it's still there in real life but and i quite like the shift back to the more traditional bernard lee style office and last thing i'd say is totally fine with le Chief working for specter the whole time i assumed he was like back in the day i didn't know about the right stuff yet i thought it was specter yeah, they were leading towards that. Well, yeah, Quantum essentially was, wasn't it? They just couldn't call it Spectre. Quantum essentially was. Two problems there, right? Quantum, they, they should have said something like, oh, well, that was what we called ourselves or, or something like that. And then we then we globalized. Or they, they should have said Quantum is part of Spectre instead of just, well, Quantum were working for us or something. It was just, they didn't iron that out properly. But Silver working for Spectre makes no sense. Like, fair enough if Sam Mendes was another director who'd come in, but he is the director of Skyfall, why would he undermine his own movie? Yeah, it's it's a strange thing. I Yeah, I didn't like the... Well, well, we'll get into it when we get to the um, Skyfall. And so my okay, next one, my 22, is Diamonds Are Forever. Okay, cool. Yeah, very good. Which is the most Roger Moore Bond film that doesn't have Roger Moore in it. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's it's crazy. It is, given that they then do a tonal shift where they try to make Roger Moore Sean Connery for his first two. <laughs> I feel like I, I've always, of all the films, for a while there, Diamonds was kind of like, I just I just really don't want to watch it. I just, I just, it's just boring and crap. And then I kind of, I was thinking to myself recently, I was kind of like, well, you know, I love Adam West Batman. And that's kind of the closest James Bond has ever come to truly yeah. like Adam. Like even the establishing shots are just these big, wides where they'll play this goofy music like that or whatever there's kind of a charm to it and like i think winton kid are kind of cool and yeah i like winton kid i like charles gray but he's not blofeld he's not the blofeld we've met before um connery's i really couldn't give a fuck i'm here for the money 
Absolutely. attitude kind of plays quite nicely in the film. I, I do have an issue with Money Penny asking him to bring back a diamond engagement ring for her, oh. given that it's the film directly after his wife just died. Read the room, Money Penny. Jeepers. <laughs> it's like... I absolutely agree, though, that in Diamonds Are Forever, his don't give a shit attitude kind of works a little bit for the movie in a way that it didn't for you only live twice, where he yeah. truly just looks bored and kind of sad. Whereas in Diamonds Are Forever, he's kind of like, hey, I'm laughing all the way to the bank here, guys. And it's kind of funny that he's a bit fat as well. Like, not to body shame. But, well, you know, he's not in shape at all. And he's only 41. <laughs> yeah, I, I get the feeling he was just like, I will rock up as I am. Yeah. It's like, I'm not doing any kind of... <laughs> you probably didn't do much rehearsal either. It was just kind of like, I'm rocking up on set. We're rolling, then I'm fucking off. And, and if I pretty... see Harry Saltzman, I'm going to stab him. And, and, and again, sorry, I, I really don't mean to body shame here, but it is pretty funny and pretty telling that when Roger Moore was cast, I, I read this in his book, Bond on Bond. Uh, Kobe Broccoli told him to lose weight. Yeah, there's all, there's all these pictures of him like jogging to lose weight. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, again, no bad James Bond movies. And look, Tom Mankiewicz, there are some banger lines of dialogue in there. That, like we've all heard the Plenty of Two line. It is, it is a great line. Like it is. Yeah, great. the collar and cuffs. The I was just out taking my walk. Rat for all. I love his exchange with the rat in the tunnel. And one of us smells like a tart handkerchief. Sorry, dear boy. Pitch me. Um, I will say when me and my brother were kids. He showed me Diamonds Are Forever. He, I, I think it was like we taped it the night before and he got up early and watched the whole thing and then like woke me up and was like, Robert, you got to watch Diamonds Are Forever. It's awesome. Brought me down. And the line where uh, Tiffany Case goes, do you know who that was? You just killed James Bond. And he just laughed his head off. He thought this was so funny. And Sean Connery's like, is that who that was? <laughs> it's, it's, oh uh, yeah, that, that, that's good. I mean, that's a bit of fun. It's a lot like the Roger Moore Saints series where everybody seemed to know that he was Simon Templar. Yeah. But it's kind of, how effective are you as a secret agent if everybody knows who you are? Roger Moore says that a lot. I'm always kind of like, do people know who James Bond is the whole time? Like, he, he's always like, well, everywhere Jim Bond went, they were like, here's your drink, Mr. Bond, and here's your room, Mr. Bond. And look, no, that, that kind of happens here and there. But like, for the most part, he does. People don't like he is a secret agent in those films. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's more the Tiffany Case knowing who James Bond is. And yeah, yeah. in Man with a Golden Gun, a golden bullet with his number on it being sent to uh, MI6. All right, what's your number? It's 23. 23 for me is Octopussy, which I watched last night. That's a little higher for me. So, all right then. My 21 is Quantum of Solace. My 22 is Quantum of Solace. Ooh. So we're essentially tied there. Um, Or Question of Sport, as Mark Commode always called a it. Question of Sport. I love that. I, I do think he was a bit harsh. I, I Yeah, again, it's. I don't think it's as bad as everybody says it is. No. I think it I, gets an unfair kick in. And there are people who cl who maintain that it is the second best Craig film and that they, they think it, there are people who really, really like Quantum of Solace. Interesting. It's the most born of the Daniel Craig Bond ones. It's the one that leans into that Jason Bourne aesthetic the most. I mean, to the fact that they even wiped half the crew from the Bourne films. And I would say it leans the most into Bourne for the worse. Like, it does not work at all. I think no. that, that stuff. and. Whenever people made the Casino Royale born connect, I was like, no, it's it's Fleming. It's just Fleming. Yeah. That, that's what it is. Whereas Wanda Masalis, no, it's Jason Bourne. It's yeah. like Yeah, it's it's, it's full on, they're not even hiding it. <laughs> and I, I would say in defense of Quantum Masalis, I think all the character stuff is spot on perfect. I think all the Bond and M scenes are great, all the Bond and Mathis scenes are great. 
The problem is the action is just totally incomprehensible and boring to watch. I think anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think they had the whole mess of it was being done during a writer's strike, so they were largely doing it without a script as well. But that's the that's the funny thing is it, the problems I have with it are not the well i mean kind of the right like the villain's plot but that's a that's a recurring problem with daniel craig films like the villain's plot feels like a writer's strike script but all the vesper stuff feels good it feels thought out and fleshed out and good it's just the action the way they edit the action and film it is just it's just a mess like and i think the thing that saves it is daniel craig he just looks like 70 million dollars in that movie he looks incredible yeah him and Judy Dench are great in that. Their exchanges together. There's, oh. I love the final scene where he confronts Vesper's bo- uh, boyfriend when he's with what's her face from Castle Carnostatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, um, man, your man showed up in something else we were watching recently. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah, I, I really like that scene. And again, it eventually leads into the gun barrel. And I love the whole, mm. you know, Bond, I need you back. I never left. I um, never left. There's really? bits in it. I like the opera scene. I like when and how Bond's really like watching the them all. Scene. And I like how he gets them all to stand up. My uh, and do you know what? I, do you know what else I'll say, Stuart? Ninety minutes in and out. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's I, it's brisk. There's a couple of times where it drags at that ninety minutes. There's there's frustrating things like when M tells him that he killed somebody's bodyguard that was working for them, and it's not yeah. he knocked the guy off the roof. Somebody else shot him. At no point is Bond like then shoot the fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I like the relationship between him and Camille. Is it Camille in that one? Yeah. Camille, yeah, I do. I, it's totally platonic. They never really hint at romance at all. It's and she has her own agenda in it. I will say though, I think General Medrano is just a touch too much for Bond. Like he's kind of just like a rapist for the sake of it. And it's like, do we really? It just feels like a, like a like a step towards exploitation. Nearly, it's like what? what yeah, the build up between him and the waitress in yeah. the hotel at the end is horrible it's really sinister like it's, I'm just it's like, really uncomfortable and I, I get they're trying to go for Fleming and all that but it's like yeah but it's still James Bond like you need to be kind of oh, I don't know like there's ways to do that I, I really didn't enjoy it. that being said I love Gemma Arterton in the movie yes because it's the only like 100% old school Roger Moore shag that Daniel Craig has in his whole era where it's just not romantic and it's just totally like Hot girl, great chemistry, let's have a shag. I, I kind of like that, I have to say. Even though her grisly fate, I don't really like as much. Well, no, because I don't think there was any need for it. There was no, no. reason for it at all. No. She no. trips him up going down the stairs and then just so they could get the Goldfinger reference in. Yeah, no, that that, that felt a bit shameless. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge, not, not to skip ahead, but she made this comment earlier that like, um, earlier when No Time to Die came out, she was like, well, you know, the interesting thing about James Bond is he can he can treat women badly, but the films can't. Yeah. And actually, if you watch the Daniel Craig films specifically, it's the opposite way around. Like, he treats the women fairly well for the most part, but the films treat them pretty badly. Yeah. <laughs> like, a lot of them die so that he can have motivation and realize this and that. And, you know, it's I, I sometimes feel like they've learned the wrong lessons when actually if you go back to those older ones like they're actually unusually progressive and like the the whole woman being a sacrificial lamb thing is really something that came in pretty strong in the Brosnan era like it wasn't it wasn't this mainstay of Sean Connery and Roger Moore the way people sort of think it is well yeah I mean I suppose well we always refer to it as the one to keep one to kill yeah thing when he had two women which was where license to kill bucks the trend particularly (laughs) oh a quick shout out uh i'm I'm gonna i know you're not a gamer so i don't want to i don't want to labor this point 
I am currently playing the uh, Quantum of Solace game for PS2 on an emulator, and it's a bit of fun. It's it's pretty good. You get to play as Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig is actually doing the voice. Yeah. A lot of it is flashback to Casino Royale as well, because they didn't have a script when they were making the game, so they had to just use a lot of Casino Royale as flashbacks while the Quantum guys were figuring out what the movie even was. A lot of fun. And there was a, an Xbox 360 game as well, which is totally different. It's a first-person shooter. That one was pretty good as well. And if Yeah, I've got the PS3 one, which I played briefly yeah. and then just couldn't get on with it. Like like you say, I'm not a massive gamer. I, if you like Casino Royale and you're like, oh, I wish there was a game, that that's the game. Like, yeah. play the Quantum of Solace game. Cause that's well, yeah, because that was the other thing, wasn't it? There wasn't a Casino Royale game, so they sort of tied it in that way. All right, then. My number 20 is Thunderball. Ooh, that's pretty low. My uh, number 21 is The Man with the Golden Gun. That was my number 23. Yeah, Man with the Golden Gun just... It's one of those ones, I enjoy it a lot more every time I watch it, but it's yes. not good. It's not great, but you know, every time, the last couple of times I've watched it, I'm like, this is not as bad as I remember it being. And Roger Moore rocks in it. He's so Roger good. Moore rocks in it, and Christopher Lee is fucking amazing, isn't it? He's great, and and yeah, look, the, the slide whistle when the car goes <laughs> on the thing, it's totally wrong, right? But what a kick-ass stunt all the same. And what everyone forgets as well is the car chase that precedes that is also amazing. Like, that would hold up today. It's such a good car chase. Yeah, I think it, it does look a bit cheaper in places, but I have to say, I've really come around to the weird kind of funhouse mirror circus thing that Scaramanga has. I think that was one of the big turnoffs I had for the movie growing up was, oh, this is just kind of goofy and it feels like Batman 66 again. And now I'm kind of like, no, that's actually kind of cool. It's like kind of weird, trippy David Lynch nearly. kind of. Yeah, I quite like it because I was always, I'm a big fan of the Avengers 60s TV series as well. And it's very that. The thing that brings it down for me, and it's no disrespect for Eklund, is the good night character. Yes, no, totally. Yeah, no, rubbish. Talking about the films not treating the female characters well. Maud Adams is great in it. and Maud, Yeah, I feel like Mary Goodnight specifically, and again, it's not Brie Eklund's fault, but she's the, when people make fun of Bond girls, that's who they're making, that, that's who they're referring to as that character specifically. Yeah. Like, I can't really think of anyone else in the whole series that is a kind of as egregious an example as that. Like just this total ditzy airhead who who does nothing right and causes all these calamities to happen, so James Bond has to swoop in and save her. Like that's that's literally all she is. Yeah, it's it's virtually Pink Panther, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but without the charm and wit. My number nineteen is Live and Let Die. Okie dokie. My number twenty is For Your Eyes Only. My number eighteen is No Time to Die. Oh, that's pretty low. My number nineteen is Live and Let Die. We could do that one now and then. So, yeah, Live and Let Die is fine. It's neither good nor bad for me. It's just, it's fine. I think the reason I still can't quite put it lower than midsection is just uh, Roger Moore is obviously just looks better in this probably than he ever did ever again because he just was just a touch too old. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how young he looks in this one. For 45, like, he's actually older than Sean Connery, which <laughs> blows my mind every time I think about it. He looks amazing. Um, Yafakoto exceptional Bond villain so good and then obviously Jane Seymour like just three stalwarts and I really like the kind of voodoo vibe of the film it just there's a real vibe to the film and then Roger Moore's turtleneck at the end and he has the big whatever you call it Smith and Wesson gun and all the little efforts they make to differentiate him from Connery as well really really appreciate that I'm going to come back to that later on he has a cigar you know he briefly uses the Walter but he's also using the big six shooter looks badass and doesn't order a vodka martini, has a bourbon instead, which is also a 
drink that Bond had in the books. Like great efforts made to really make this guy stand on his own two feet. Just and last appearance of Felix Leiter for a while as well. Until last Dalton. And and one of the best Felix Leiter. Yeah, David Hedison. David Hedison. And then also finally the George Martin score rocks so yeah. good. And it's one of the probably one of the best not John Barry or David Arnold scores, I think. Yeah, yeah. no, I like it. I like Yafet Koto, uh, Koto as Kananga and Mr. Big. I love him at the end where he's just clearly off his tits on them. <laughs> he just seems to be having so much fun with Bond. I'm a big man for the James Bond watches, as in the wrist yeah. watches that he wears. And this is a serious film for James Bond watches. You've got the, obviously the, the classic Rolex. And then he also has, I'm, I'm trying to remember, is the Rolex, the Rolex is the one with the magnet on it, which which he uses to, sure magnetism, darling. Excellent stuff iconic scene and then obviously the um and he uses that to get the bullet at the end kick ass and then he also has that kick weird pulsar watch which was like this strange led looking thing that you, you had to press a button on it for the time to come up in this weird kind of red led light thing it's so bizarre and so amazing that roger moore wore one and uh yeah so Great movie for Bond watches. Was there? A, did he have a buzzsaw watch in this one as well? Yeah, wasn't that? Because that's how he gets free at the end, isn't it? Pick ass, so good. Sean Connery didn't really. There was a watch in Thunderball, but like he wasn't the watch guy. Like Roger Moore, gadget watches. Like I say, it's it's sort of middle Bond for me. It's not one I go back to that often. It's one I enjoy when I watch it, but it's not one I'll go back to. A bit like Man with the Golden Gun. It's always worse in my head than I actually remember when I watch it kind of thing. That was quite the good thing about watching a lot of these back to back and then doing a rank in that way. Last thing I'll say, Live and Let Die, you might know this as well. It holds the record. It was broadcast in the early 80s on ITV. It holds the record for the most amount of viewers on a British broadcast ever. It got something like 25 million <laughs> viewers in one night, like just completely insane. Like there, there was episodes of Law or episodes of Lois and Clark in the United States of America <laughs> that didn't get ratings like that That's in it. the 90s. Like, it, and it will never be beaten ever because broadcast ratings will never reach the heights they did no. back then. Well, that's it. I mean, a Bond film on telly was a huge deal. Like yeah. say, even Saturday nights, us as a family watching ones that had been on multiple times before. Because, I mean, this is sort of before they even started doing the Bond seasons that they used to do in the 90s up till now, where they'd show all the films one a week kind of thing. And the best thing about them as well is, like, I remember watching them as a kid and you'd you'd enter the movie halfway through and, like, you'd have missed half the movie, but it's still so watchable. Like, even landing halfway through a Bond movie, you're like, I'm engrossed. And going back to Quantum of Solace earlier on, like, that came on. Everyone's always like, oh, you'd never watch a Daniel Craig movie at Christmas Day or whatever. Quantum of Solace was on Christmas Day last year, and I was engrossed. I, I landed into it halfway through. I'm like, I thought, I remember this not being good. I'm having a great time watching Yeah, this. it's weird how Bond films get you like that. Because I must admit, with the Daniel Craig ones, if I'm partway through one, like, you know, channel hopping and it's on, if unless it's at a bit where I'm like, oh, I'll just get to this bit, I tend to keep skipping. Whereas a Brosnan one or a Dalton or Moore or Connery, I'm kind of like, oh, no, this bit's good. And then I'm suckered in for the rest of it. Whereas with the Craig ones, I feel like I'm missing out by having missed the beginning. All right, then, my number 17, arguably controversially, is Die Another Day. Oh, <laughs> bingo, baby. Number 18 is Die Another Day. This is the only Bond film I saw twice at the cinema. Oh, wow. Because I loved it. I was caught up in that 40 things. People forget as well. It was like the highest grossing Bond film until Craig. Yeah, that. I mean, I, I, I kind of don't want to shift to craig just yet but it is so interesting that they that this was a huge success like it i don't understand why they went we have this movie that made a bunch of money and everyone loves pierce brosnan let's dump that and do 
the best James Bond movie ever instead. Like, yeah, I don't know, but I, uh, I do feel for Brosnan. I th- feel Brosnan was because I'd argue out of all the actors that played Bond, he's the one who wanted to be Bond the most. I don't know if I agree with that. I I still think Roger Moore. I think just enjoyed it more. And oh, I think Roger Moore enjoyed it, but I don't. Think, I think Roger Moore would have quite happily walked away. It wasn't if it wasn't for the fact that Cubby Broccoli finally put his hands in his pocket. If 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 I had to guess, and I'm I'm only guessing here, but I I honestly I love Pierce Brosnan. I love all four of those films. I've rewatched them more than I've rewatched most films. I do think he is the weakest James Bond actor. I think he is because I don't think he got given the freedom that others were given. I think they wanted somebody to sort of reignite the franchise by being that combination of everything that had come before. But I think he was content to do that. I don't think he's a very good actor. I think I think he's very hammy. And I think if it was up to him, we, you know, there'd be I, I think they wanted to bring it. He and Eon wanted to bring it in a more grounded, darker direction. And they they understandably went, he's not the guy. I think that's what happens. Oh, yeah, I don't think he could have done a Casino Royale. As interesting as I think a Casino Royale with a Bond at the end of his tenure rather than at the beginning yeah, would have been an interesting watch. I don't think Brosnan's the guy to do it. And I I really like Brosnan. He's in several films. Um, we, we'll talk about some of my issues with Brosnan when we get to Twine. Arguably, I say he's possibly his best in Die Another Day as Bond. He's just laid back into the role by this point for me. I I still somewhere between Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies, I think he peaked. I I think the other two, he's just really hammy and too many bits. And he, I I also, it's just a small thing, but the, the way they do his hair in the last two, it just doesn't suit him. Like he looks much better when he has big, lavish, you know, power mullet hair. I, I think he had peak hair short. in Tomorrow Never Dies for me. Peak hair in Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah. Peak everything and the physique, the look, everything yeah. just looked awesome in that one. Uh, well, look in defense, Dawn of the Day, you, you know, like I think. Bond movies are often great because they represent the time in which they were made. There is no movie that looks more like it was made in 2002 than Tom No, that's it. The CGI shit. I don't know why they did that. Why I know why they did that, but um utter shit, but it's not even just the see C- it's like the early digital kind of color grade on it as well is really strange looking and the kind of crash zooms and all that. It's very early 2000s. I mean, it's it's a lead time horror film and it shows it, it it reeks of it. It's a film that I really went off for a while, particularly when the Craig era started. And I think as the Craig era has gone on, I've got a bit more... It's a bit like as the Brosnan era went on, you've got a bit more nostalgic for the Dalton sort yeah. of tone of the films. Yeah. And I think the current Bond, their tone sort of makes you crave what came before a bit more or what would come after in this case. I have, I have a lot of goodwill to it. And, you know... Oh, I do. It's nowhere near as bad as it says. I don't even hate The Invisible Car. No, absolutely. Because they've not. done much more ridiculous stuff than that. At least there's a science to it. All right, they've exaggerated that science. Because there was that, that Top science. Gear Bond special where they made an invisible car. It has been proven multiple times. That, like you, the, the the technology to make a car invisible is theoretically possible. The technology to turn a car into a submersible is impossible. You can't yeah. do that. You know, so it's crazy that people are so annoyed about one and not the other. I that stuff never annoyed me. I, I think I love that they there's at least one film where they said Right, well, we have this series where uh, one of the most famous things about it is all the gadgets. Let's just throw all the gadgets in, like kitchen sink gadget movie. Like, I love that they just went to town with the gadgets for just one movie. And the the, the battle on ice where uh, the Aston Martin versus Zhao, that's one of the best sequences in the whole series. Yeah, I was going to say, I love that. I could do with a little bit less of the slow down, speed up. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, 
that but when they actually get into the ice palace as well i love that i love the way oh, they use that set all that stuff is awesome and people kind of forget about that because of all the cgi the kite surfing and all that whatever and to be honest it's so the kite surfing is so bad it's good yeah you know like it's so just ridiculous and brosnan's giving it loads and he's like grimacing at the camera and it's just like i wouldn't i wouldn't get rid of that for and there is this fan edit called icarus or something and they cut out all this stuff that doesn't work and you're just like why would i watch this i want to watch all the bad stuff it's part of the part of the fun of this film is is you know so, it's, yeah, it's really I, solid to be given as well i know a lot of people say it goes off the rails when they get to the ice palace but i still enjoy that stuff as well but beginnings so a nice I. really solid bond film as well yeah absolutely the, the, for me it goes off the rails when they're on gustav graves plane yeah. at the very end it just turns into austin powers insanity at that point like he's got the dr doom suit and he's shooting electricity at people and rosamund pike is wearing this catwoman costume and it just that's when it gets really really silly for me like everything up until then i'm kind of like this is silly but I, I think what lets the film down more than anything else is the dialogue. It's pun after pun after pun after pun. Yeah, Halle Berry's underserved. I don't think she gives a great performance in the film. Again, nothing against her. I think she's very no, good in other things, yeah. but she's given shit to work with. Shit to work with, but she looks amazing. And like her coming out of the... Everyone makes fun of the references. There's too many references, and that's fair enough. But her coming out of the water like Ursula Andress, I actually think that is a good reference. They did that well. And it, it is iconic. And people do talk about it still, like Halle Berry walking out. Like, I think that kind of worked. And I like that he's reading Birds of the West Indies. <laughs> I'm just here for the birds. That, another another Brosnan delivery I hate is when she goes, oh, she says some line or whatever. And then, and then he goes, and then they feast. Like there's no tomorrow. It's just like, oh, shut up, Dad. He's rubbish. Sorry. This, yeah, I mean, we'll get to it. Like, say when we get to twine with with my Brosnan issue because it's it's most prevalent in that film for me. All right, then my number sixteen is Octopussy. Um, Do you want to go first with Octopussy? Yeah, I mean, it's a hugely flawed film, but I really enjoy it. Mm. There's a couple of tonal issues with it. Um, the fate of VJ seems really out of place with the rest of the film because he has a horribly grim death for a character that really doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Um, and obviously you've got the casual racism of the 80s. Ooh. I, I was going to say it just to have it said, but I'm not I'm not going to say it. It's just deeply... Like, and they must have known even then. You know that kind of way? Like, Well, the fact that the... Is it the juggler or the sword swallower in the background is Mark Heap from Spaced. Oh, is he? Really? I didn't even know that. With a lot of fake tan on. Like I say, it's... It's better once you get past that stuff. The stuff with the circus is great. The twins, the beginning of Octopussy again, pre-title mm. sequence is great. Yeah, it is. With Wonderfully good that. fun. Or sorry, no, the pre-title sequence with the plane and all that. Yeah. Thing. I do like that, but I always kind of just feel like it's a bit of a shame that we're back to silly Roger again when, you know, the, the bit where he's kind of in the car with the two guards and he's like, oh, take a look at her over there. <laughs> And the actress wasn't, she was only 17. Did you know that? Yeah, I know. There's there, there's issues. I'm not going to, like I say, there's indefensible things in it. Again, I found with this rewatch, because again, it's amazing how your ranking changes with each rewatch kind of thing. That I enjoyed the Roger Moore ones a lot more this time than I usually do. Yeah. Like I say, Octopussy, the twins freaked me out. That beginning bit where they kill, out, they kill was it 006 or 008? 009. 009. I get there eventually. Yeah, that always nice and creepy as a kid. And yeah, I mean, the fact Roger Moore can pull off defusing a bomb whilst wearing a clown outfit. Yeah. And um, the and Stephen Burkhoff's just going off his tits nuts. <laughs> Stephen Burkhoff and the, the, the set, I was going to say the KGB set, but it, it, the Russian council set thing at the start. 
with the revolving table and the screen that comes out. That's kick-ass. Really, really cool. Because I don't think Ken Adam did this one. I think it was um, Peter Lamont. Yeah, I think you're right. First one. Really, really good. And I really liked, I watched it last night, actually. And even though Roger Moore is generally doing the sort of sillier stuff more so in this, there is shades of the Fear Eyes only Roger Moore in this as well. And like the scene where he's playing backgammon with Kamal Khan is a kick-ass James Bond. Yeah, player's privilege. Double sixes. Fancy that. Really good, really good stuff. Again, I, I do love where he's bidding on the egg as well. The guy next to him's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And he never, he never break. He's looking, maintaining eye contact with him the whole time. It's Roger Moore was a much better actor than people gave him credit for. Yeah, really oh, yeah, definitely. I like that Desmond Llewellyn gets quite a bit to do in this as well, and he's clearly just having fun. I like that specifically because I only found out in recent years that Desmond Llewellyn was only ever paid like a day a day yeah. for the films and he was like pretty poor in the 80s. So anytime they gave him more to do, I'm kind of like good because he was getting paid. And I know that Desmond Llewellyn and Roger Moore got on really well to the point where Desmond Llewellyn had to have cue cards to read off of and Roger Moore used to either shift him around or rewrite him just to I, fuck with him. <laughs> I, I do think like there's definitely... We, we should do another ranking someday, like a Bond movies ranked by how good Q is in them, because definitely Octopussy is one of the best yeah. in that regard. Like he has a lot in this one. Like the, he just really loses it with Bond in this one as well. Like, I don't appreciate these adolescent ad adolescent tendencies or whatever it is. So, yeah, which is in that really not age well bit at all where he's zooming in on the woman's cleavage. Oh, my goodness. And and he says, oh, someone take care of my dinner jacket. I got stabbed or whatever. He says, they missed you. What a pity. Brilliant. I just like him with the girls in the air balloon. He's like, I haven't got time for that now. Maybe later. Later, perhaps. Oh, Desmond Llewellyn. <laughs> just the idea of Q right. getting some. He sh he should have been knighted. I hope I hope the Windsors are listening. He should have been knighted. Yeah. The best he got was that really awkward episode of uh, This Is Your Life. I, I would like to think that by the time we get into the Barbara Broccoli years and it's the Brosnan era and all that, I would like to think they were paying Desmond Llewellyn some, some proper change. What he was worth, yeah. Because he was, and they really trolleyed him out for those films as well. Like they, he did the interview circuit and they brought him to the, like the BMW launch and all that. Like they really made a big deal of Desmond Llewellyn. Well, yeah, because like I say, his episode of This Is Your Life was basically a promo for Goldeneye. Yeah. Because he was, you had Famke Janssen come out. who was kind of like, I don't think we have met you at all. So I, and, and he was like a decorated war hero as well. Yeah. He was in a, like a POW camp for two years or something crazy. He deserved better. Yes. Nobody does it better. Exactly. All right. And what was your 17, would it be for you? 17 for me. Uh, you only live twice. Ah, that's my number 15. So. Uh, oh, okay. Cool. Again, it's fine. The Ken Adams volcano set is amazing. The Japanese in Sean Connery is problematic. I loved it as a kid. And then I kind of, as I came back to it, as I got older, I was like, oh, this isn't very good. Sean Connery's bored, whatever. Every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more. And yeah, the Japanese stuff, it's like, uh, as in him becoming a Japanese man, it's, it makes no sense. It doesn't serve any point. Like, it's it's just padding the runtime a bit. But John Barry's score is just so good. And the Ken Adams set, the Volcano set is so good. And Yeah, the Little Nelly sequence is great. The, the, this is a real kind of wish fulfillment one as well, where it's almost like you see this a bit in the Brosnan era as well. And, and sometimes in Roger Moore's Boy Who Loved Me and stuff, the film is just so incredibly in love with how awesome James Bond is and like just there's a scene where he's like running across a rooftop and he's literally swatting ninjas away yeah like single punches and John Barry blaring and there's this lovely overhead shot and just bits like that you're just like oh I'm having so much fun like I know I shouldn't like this but I, I just do it's so good 
And Donald Pleasant's weirdly, like, despite being probably the most iconic Blofeld, isn't that good as Blofeld, but he's just kind of, when you see him, you're just like, oh, perfect, James Bond. Like, I'm here. It's great, you know? Yeah, I really like it. And then he has that fight with The Rock's grandfather. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I, I just, again, no ill will to what is objectively not a very good film. No, it's one of those ones that seems to build up and build up and build up, and then it slows right down before finally building up again for the finale. It's fine. It's not one I go back to that often, but I enjoy it when I watch it kind of thing. It, I think in some ways it's a shame they brought Connery back for Diamonds Are Forever because this was quite a nice end for him. Yeah, Possibly Thunderball would have been a better one for him to go out on. but I feel like no, no one should end after... Less than five movies. It's like they're, they're, it always feels like there's unfinished business. Then, yeah, you know, like in a way. So I'm I'm kind of happy with uh with them coming back. All right. And what was your sixteen? It'd be for you on Never Say Never Again. But yep. I, 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 that's not on your list, so we can't talk about it. No. Well, we'll we've got that on the schedule for yeah. for later on. So, so if we give do your fifteen, then Goldeneye. Ooh, right. smack in the middle. Nice. Um. All right. And so yeah, my number fourteen was Doctor No. A Moonraker. My number thirteen is Goldeneye. Arguably ah. the most overrated Bond film. <laughs> and I will say, I loved this initially. Until Tomorrow Never Dies came out, I loved Goldeneye. Partly because of the game. It was the right film to bring Bond back, I think. But it weirdly feels out of place with everything. Because it doesn't fit with the rest of the Brosnan ones. No. Stylistically, it's completely different. Yep. Yeah, it feels like a weird sort of floating in the middle of two franchises kind of. I would nearly say it feels more like a Daniel Craig film in a lot of ways. It's it's a lot of the same stuff they came back to do in Skyfall and then kind of again in Spectre No Time to Die as well. Yeah. It's, it's that sort of, you know, man out of time, like the old ways still work. All, all those themes they brought back for those is what, whereas if you go to Tomorrow Never Dies and especially Dino the Day, James Bond is the man of tomorrow again. Like they, they yeah. never apologize for him. They never say, oh, well, your methods don't work anymore, Bond. We don't need you. Like there's no talk of that at all in those films. I go over, I go over and back on this one. Uh, the most recent viewing I had was prefaced by my first ever playthrough the whole way through of the game. And I think the game and the film really, really complement each other. Yeah. Perfectly. In a, in a way that like weirdly, some of the films and the books complement each other. It's that same symbiotic relationship where one makes the other better and uh I, I i think it's impossible to talk about the film without talking about that game and just how iconic it was and the impact it had and it's now gotten to the point where i don't begrudge people who like this film because they love the game so much no that's it's fair. impossible to divorce the two and i think if you only approach this as a bond film then yeah i do think it is a bit overrated in that sense but i think all the other stuff around it, the impact it had at the time it was released, bringing the franchise back in a big way, cashing in on the Brosnan thing and all that kind of stuff. People wanted to see him for years, all that stuff. And the the kind of providence of Brosnan and the Cassandra Harris connection and all that. I, I think it's great that he did finally get to play the character. But yeah, the game is really what sets this film off for me. I think it makes the plot more engrossing. And the, everything about the production design and everything, just the game just makes it bigger and better. It's funny you say it. Daniel Craig one, it feels very much like it was written for Timothy Dalton. As much as I love Timothy Dalton, I don't think it would have been the right move to bring him back for this film. I agree. I think you needed a clean slate kind of thing. All right, they brought Desmond Llewellyn back. But I just think for me, for years, I couldn't put my finger on it. And I was talking to a friend and he was like, there's just a smugness to it. that It doesn't feel like it's earned yet. Once he said that, I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I can kind of see that there is a certain smugness to it that, you know, it thinks it's more than it is. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, a, yeah. I, 
I, I suppose I do agree. Like my biggest problem with it has always been that, you know, they ask all these questions in the first act. Oh, do we still need 007? You know, your relic of the Cold War and all this stuff. And then they don't really cash in on any of that. Like once you get into the second and third act, it's just James Bond doing what he does best. And there's no there's no sense that he's doing anything wrong. Well, I mean, I know we have that scene with Natalia where she's like, N Natalia says something like, oh, why do you do this? Why do you kill all these people? And says, oh, because it keeps me alive. That's yeah. the only other discussion in the entire film about kind of Bond's That's what keeps you alone. That's a great exchange, actually. I do really like that. But again, as I, as I get older and as I rewatch it, I, I think Sean Bean is pretty excellent in it and yeah. it is a great idea to have a former double o be the villain and all that like stuff like and it's something and it's strange that they haven't gone back to that well more i think sometimes that like where are all these other double o agents like you kind of see them from time to time and they sort of die at the start of a couple of roger moore movies but like this is the first film that really cashes in on well this is 006 like and it feels like you're meeting this really really important character and sean bean is just absolutely excellent and obviously he could have played james bond too yeah, because he was one of the ones in contention, wasn't he? Because obviously he was sharp as well. He was a huge sex symbol at the time. And and I have to say as well, one of my biggest problems with all of John Glenn's films is how they're shot. And they just look really flat. And I think didn't he, he was a director who was excellent at shooting action, but not dialogue or character stuff at all. I don't think, except for bits of License to Kill, I think for the most part... Like if you watch Fear Eyes Only, it's like watching a TV, like an ITV drama of the week. That all the shot, reverse shot, wide shot, like it's all so standard. But then you get into Goldeneye, and it's only a couple of years after License to Kill, and it finally looks like what I think the Dalton movies should have looked like. That just yeah. has this lavish cinematic look to it, and I think that can't be um, understated either. Like it's it really looks beautiful this film. And they're not yeah. afraid to like close in on Brosnan's face and his eyes and all that stuff. It's really, really, really cool. Yeah, I like that they set it the pre-title sequence seven years earlier as well, pretty much erasing yeah. Timothy Dalton. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Because you know, bitter fucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I say, it's fine. The score sort of grown on me. It's wrong, but I don't hate it as much as everybody else seems to hate it. I, I do hate the score, yeah. No, I, I absolutely hate it. I, I um, think that the, the, the scene at the start in the Severnaya facility is, is kind of somewhat interesting. But when you get to like the casino and he meets Xenia for the first time and they're playing this ridiculous love theme, you're just like, well, what? What, what? Why are we playing this? It doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, you get to the tank chase and he wanted to play this kind of cafe lounge thing again and they were like no 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 no, we're, we're doing the james bond theme here and they had to bring in another composer to do it yeah the bit of music i do really love is is run jump shoot on the soundtrack is where they're escaping after he's killed russian minister okay and they're escaping yeah. I, I do love that That's where he uses a belt buckle swing thing and all that um, i do love that little bit of music but it is yeah it's I, I not think... a great score for the most part, yeah, it's just poorly placed. And yeah, he, I, I think he was quite a young composer at the time, Eric Serra as well. Yeah, he just done like Leon and a lot of the Luke Besson stuff. So I think that's what they were going for with that. Like, interesting idea, but didn't work for me. And and everyone will always say, oh, but the game made me appreciate it more. The, the music in the game is a million times better than the music yeah. in the film. And they take the best bits from the film and they expand upon those. And those are great. But a lot of the music in the game is completely original. It's nothing to do with the film. Goldeneye did have an amazing trailer, though. It did. A very, very good trailer. If, if ever we do an episode on trailers, that, that'd be up there for me. My number 13 is Thunderball. Thunderball is possibly another one that I've flip-flopped on the most. Yeah. For a long time, it was my favourite Connery. 
Um, it's it. just more the more I watch it, the slower and more plodding it is. Once we get to the like the main Underwater location of the film, once we get past the Hell's Club and all that stuff, which that stuff's fine, but it's, I mean you've got Rabie Connery and yeah. <laughs> all that issue as well. But um, yeah, sort of once we get to the Domino stuff and they're out on the island, I, I like all that stuff. It's possibly my favorite like destination Bond. Yeah, no, I I, I totally get it. Look, it is a, it's a slow like plotting film and it this is very much an appointment watch it's not one that you just throw on for me because it is it feels longer than a lot of them and the underwater stuff can be you know you need to come at it with all your your full attention or your yeah you can feel the kevin mcclory of it all can't you (laughs) but i just think there's so many incredible iconic elements in it that yeah. i just love so much and connery fucking rules in it he just looks like the business in every single scene he's in he just looks so so cool oh no i'll bond. agree this is the first one that nails the bond formula completely and th- th- this is one of the ones where it's like when he speaks he's got the voice of god like he, everything about him is just incredible in this and then all the specter stuff is just perfectly perfectly done like i think this is probably the best depiction of specter in any of the movies really like the the, the boardroom scene is incredible Anthony Dawson playing Blofeld behind the big corrugated iron thing. So good. And then the guy getting electrocuted and Largo. And yeah, the guy playing Largo, Adolfo Celli, I think his name is. Yeah. He's very bog standard, you know, work for hire type guy. Sometimes that's what a Bond film needs to be, though. Yeah. It just, it needs like Stromberg and Spy Lumi's. Yeah, I was going to say that when Sometimes we get to that just, one. You just need a guy to just get out there and try to take over the world and leave it at that, you know? And yeah, Claudine Auger, I couldn't get over it. She is great in this. And yeah. she's another victim of like a shit dub job, but she's doing great. And Luciana Paluzzi is box office. So yeah. good. Just Yeah, to the point where they tried to repeat it with You Only Live Twice and it just doesn't work as well at all. And they, they tried to repeat it in uh, another film. Yeah. We'll, we'll mention another time. Yeah. Uh, all that <laughs> Fatima Blush. All that. Like when you think of you know, the Kevin McClory of it all and all that sort of stuff. And that that was kind of a card stacked against this film. I would have thought in some ways it absolutely blew everybody, pardon the pun, out of the water. Like this was the the, the book, The Essential Bond by Lee Pfeiffer and Dave Warrell. They described it as like the Star Wars of its day. Like it yeah. made so much money. It was, oh, like it was huge. $140 million in 1960. That's it. Came off the back of Goldfinger as well, which was also huge. But yeah, Thunderball was. That's really where the phenomena started. Yeah, yeah, and and they and and again they bring the Aston Martin back, the jetpack. Oh man, like something that never should have worked, and it's just one of the most iconic things in the whole series. Yeah, and and sorry, John Barry scoring this. Yeah, probably for me, that's the definitive Sean Connery James Bond score. Is the John Barry score in this? The. It's so cool. I said the Tom Jones song, perfect song to vocals. Yeah, really good. The the fact he nearly burst a blood vessel. Yeah, he fainted or something. He did, yeah, doing the note. I I saw Tom Jones live about 10 years ago with my dad. He got free tickets and I was kind of like, oh, let's go and see this. And I he was incredible, but he didn't play Thunderball. I was disgusted. Uh, I wonder if it's, I don't know, might kill him now. Could kill him, or maybe there's rights stuff there as well. Possibly. You know? A lot of lot of Monty Norman in that song, so Yeah, yeah, could well be. It's um great song though. Great, yeah. great song. Like people always got bang on about Goldfinger. I kinda like Thunderball a bit more as a song. Very yeah, good. no, I think I do as well. Very close to the book as well, Thunderball. Yes. And in fact, and we'll we'll probably get into this again. Like one of the things people always say is, Oh, they should do with Amazon series like 
directly based on the books. Like, actually, if you read most of the books, and I have, I've read all of them, like, the Connery films, for the most part, are pretty close yeah. to the books. You can say what you want about the characterization. And then on Honor Majesty's Secret Service is better than the book. It is. It's better than the book. Like, loads of them. Casino Royale, like, is pretty as good as you're going to get. Like, I don't really see the point in doing that, I have to say, to be honest. No, it does I mean, other than, you know, <laughs> we get to see her naked at the sea. It's like, mm. Yeah, like, the, the only ones that really stand out, Dr. No is, like, there, there's lines in Dr. No that are taken from the book. Like, yeah. the dialogue is so close. The only one for me that would be worth doing like that would be probably Moonraker because it's so different. And strangely enough, The Spy Who Loved Me, I think yeah. it's a really, really interesting book, even though it's deeply problematic in a lot of ways. But anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll move on tangent-wise there. But uh, yeah, Thunderball's great. Yeah. Yeah, again, like I say, it's low down on mine, but it's not a bad film. It's just no. one that I find more plodding each time I watch it, but it's one I used to love. All right, then, my number 12 is what I'd argue is possibly the second most overrated Bond film, and that's Skyfall. Skyfall. Um, uh, my number 12 is No Time to Die. Uh, I had that early, further down, didn't I? So Again, it's, <laughs> it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly enjoyable. I don't get everybody fucking shitting on it like they do. Um, it had the terrible burden of the weight of expectation in that it eventually took six years to finally come out. I never wanted to be a projectionist more than the ones who got to do a test reel of it a year yeah. before it came out, but then couldn't tell anybody. Yikes. You seem a lot more positive about it than I thought you would. Yeah, no, I really I really enjoyed it this last time. When I left the cinema, I didn't know how I felt about it. I was very meh on it. And I think because, like I say, it had that weight of expectation, which even though I always try and keep my expectations low, you carry a little bit in regardless. And I generally didn't really know how I felt about the end, yeah. but it's grown on me. There's massive problems with it. Rami Malek's yeah. wasted in the film. Mm-hmm. The whole Spectre Blofeld thing just feels thrown in for the sake of it, just to tie up loose ends. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I completely agree with everything you've said, except I, I kind of like the Spectre stuff in it. I, I think they actually do a better job of Spectre in this than they do in Spectre. Inspector, yeah. Like they make them feel like this, like real, that like they've got this grip on the world and like they're all encompassing. And I, I, I think they're much more effective in this than they were in Spectre. Um, yeah, I really like this film, man. I, ju- I just think it's like the, the, the only thing it really has going against it is just that the Safin plot is just missing a few lines yeah. of dialogue to make it make sense. It doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't. I'm sorry. No. But like, th- I, there are ways that it could, but it just isn't in the film. You know, um, all the Bond stuff is great. And like, I, I went in, the film is called No Time to Die. It was going to be Daniel Craig's last one. Purvis and Wade have been making that joke for years in interviews where they said, well, what if we just kill him? I went. I, I felt it was it was coming. I, I absolutely felt, and I'm so baffled by all these people going, oh, I couldn't believe it. I was sitting there in shock. I'm like, really? Like, it was clear as day that he was going to die in this one. Well, yeah, I kind um, of thought he was going to die in Spectre as they were touting it as his last one at one point. Because it's the only way you can end what I call the Daniel Craig experiment. Yeah. Because... Yeah. It's its own continuity. It's never tried to fit in with what's come before. Now, so it, it's natural to sort of, if you were going to kill Bond, this is the little this, bubble franchise to do, you know, arc to do it within. I want to come back to that in a second. But what, I, what, what, I, what I'd like to say as well, though, is this whole thing of it being oh, one continuous story never really worked for me. Like they sort of decided that when Spectre came along. And I was kind of like that, that, like Skyfall felt like its own thing. And then Spectre decided that it was part of this one continuing story. But No Time to Die, for me, actually made it feel like one continuing story. Yeah. Like The whole story has been about him learning that no matter how hard he tries, he can't protect the people he cares about and they always end up dead. And the ultimate retribution for him 
is finding a family, finding a normal life, learning that he can be a positive influence on the world, even if it comes at the cost of his own life. I think that that actually is a, a lovely way to wrap it all up. And crucially, for all the motherfuckers out there who complain about the use of all the time in the world, I think it couldn't be used better than it is yeah. in this film. I loved the use of all that stuff because James Bond never got, you know, he never got revenge for Tracy. That that never really happened in the original timeline, right? In this timeline, it's kind of like a, I, I like to call it a redemptive meditation, Stuart, if you don't mind. Very pretentious. It's like, it's like, like it's, it's like, it, I know it's not the same continuity. I know Tracy didn't happen here, but it's like, it's echoing into this one a little bit. And yeah. this is him finally redeeming himself for all that, you know, and Tracy is kind of Vesper in this anyway. And he's kind of redeemed, like, love it. Loved all that stuff. The death itself. I, I it didn't really have the emotional pull for me on the first viewing, but on the second one, I, I definitely felt it a bit more. Yeah. I, 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 it I didn't it... quite feel earned for my, a bit like Han Solo's death in force awakens. It kind of felt like it was there because they wanted to get to that point and they didn't really yeah. feel like they earned it. I also um, again, it's I, grown on me with each viewing. It, I, I think that maybe the biggest thing against the death itself was just the exec, the execution. Of yeah. Like it, the missiles and the rockets and the, you know, and that the, Everyone was asking, well, why are the missiles? You know, it should have just been a fucking knife or getting shot. Or it, it could have been like a much more of, of a Fleming death. You know, like in a way? Yeah. Um, or even in You Only Live Twice, he gets carried off by a... In the book, You Only Live Twice, he gets carried off by a weather balloon or something like that. And then he crashes in the sea or just something a bit more grounded, I think, would have been better for, you know. But I, I absolutely no problems with him dying. James Bond has kind of reached the point where he's like a he's a creature of myth now like he's a true I, and i hate when people say oh superheroes are modern mythology but i think james bond has actually reached the kind of pantheon of like sherlock holmes and who are the other uh, king arthur and all that like he's at that point now yeah. where he's been around so long that he's literally like, <laughs> 70 years <laughs> he's, a, he's a mythic character so i think he, they've earned the right to kill him off and they, they can bring him back in a couple of, it's not that big a deal guys like, well yeah you, know? you can either slip into the loose continuity that was connery to brosnan or you just start that. a new continuity i don't want them to do a separate continuity for each bond like I say i think this the experiment worked nicely for Daniel Craig. I'd quite like to go back to that loose continuity of snapshots from other people's point of view of who James Bond is kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I do agree with that. I Do you know what? Well, I think we're kind of on the... Yeah, I, I think... And I say loose continuity. I don't generally consider the Brosnan era to be the same as... No. Connery to Dalton, loose as it is, feels like... One thing. One piece. Brosnan feels like it. you can attach it to that piece, but it's also independent enough in itself. Craig is its own bubble continuity. For me, right, George Lazenby never went to Japan, right? <laughs> Timothy Dalton never went to space and Pierce Brosnan never married Tracy. That, like, they're all different things for me. I think every character, every actor is its own mini universe and the broad strokes are the same. It's like, it's like Batman, like for me. And Michael G. Wilson said this one time. He's, there was a fan convention in 1995 and he said, this isn't one big series. It's a series with many different series in it. And I've always thought of it as like, say, you telling me about James Bond and then somebody else telling me about their experience with James Bond. And in your thing, you're like, it was a dark fucking killer. Yeah. And then somebody else is like, this goofy fuck. I mean, he got the job done. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. goofy as shit. Man. <laughs> it's like, and you know, Batman then you got the guy in the pub who's like, and then they went to fucking space. Yeah. <laughs> Like Timothy Dalton never went to space. That no. never happened. No, so I've always sort of sort of my reconciling with it as a 
you know the same guy is that yeah. you know it's the same guy but it's a story told by an unreliable source that's that's i like that actually that's cool i like that like i say with this one no problem with bondine took issue with like getting killed oh no i like that too <laughs> no, that fucker <laughs> that suffered good. enough although i did like nobody picked it up when he kills i can't remember his name now the guy who kills lighter oh uh book of mormon i can't remember his name. yeah either. great joke by the way yeah bb water bridge added stuff to this script pretty good i liked it when he kills him everybody's like yeah that's a fiori's only thing it's like it's not it's a fucking license to kill thing yeah yeah it is it's killer for but instead of a get suitcase full of money it's a car i meant to say this as well actually the, the other big thing i think that doesn't work in this film is um lashana lynch's character i like her but they don't she seems to be there just to do the mm-hmm. female 007 it feels a little bit like they're testing whether they could get away with killing Bond but keeping the 007 thing. thing going. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think she's a wonderful actress and I like her in this movie and I like all the exchanges she had with Bond. It's one character too many. And yeah. I think that it, it takes, it takes, it pads the runtime to a point where they couldn't spend more time on Safin and exploring what he was about. And I think it, it it's excellent. It, I, I'm, you know, you know me as well as anyone else. Diversity is great. Let's do more of that. Let's have more female characters in films. Let's have more like platonic female allies in James Bond films, by all means. Oh, yeah. I love the stuff with him and Paloma. Like, I love where she starts like, to address him and he thinks it's one thing and just her reaction. And again, like, why not just combine those characters into one and have that be her big scene? You know, that kind of way. Why well, yeah, because I think originally it was meant to be Felix. Yeah. Like I, the, the Paloma scene was incredible. Like, yeah. it, it stole the movie and everyone was like, give Anna de Armas a spinoff. And you're kind of like, well, what about Lashana Lynch? Was she not being built up for a spinoff? Um, let's, let's stop trying to force spinoffs. We've tried it with Michelle Yeoh. We've tried it with Halle yeah, Berry. Let's just, happen. Bond doesn't need an expanded universe like that. It needs to, let's focus on getting Bond films out. And and I, I really must stress the fact that like I, that there are people that hate her character for very different reasons. And that that's not, I, I just, I just think it was. Oh no, I don't hate her character. I just think she's underwritten. She's underserved by the plot. Because it's one, it's one she's one character too many, like you say. Yeah. Especially yeah, as they beefed up M again. Yeah. Which you've got Ray Fine, so why wouldn't you? And he's he's great in it. And, it and there seemed to be a pattern from particularly the Craig era, but they did it in World Is Not Enough as well, where they started mm. to beef up the M role. And I was gonna say, like everyone makes this joke of oh, they're like a Scooby Doo gang now or whatever. I I no problem with that. I thought it was like no, Naomi I, Harris if, is excellent and Ray Fines and like by all means use them to your heart's content. Like give them bigger roles than Desmond Llewellyn had back yeah. in the day. Like there's no problem with that. I just in, in this particular case, I think she was just one element too many and there was no real emotional reason for it. And we've done the whole, is James Bond still relevant thing? We've done it a million times. And I just, I actually thought the scene where M rescinds her 007 status and gives it back to Bond. It's like, why are we doing that? That's a really yeah, strange well, decision. It, it felt like a weird, her requesting it thing. It just felt a little bit, it feels like if... The Lashana Lynch character was a man. She would have been killed off Absolutely. to make way for one, been... because she was a female character. Yeah. And I get that you don't want to do the want to keep, want to kill, want to platonically take out a bunch of spec dudes. It, it, she, yeah, she would have been like Saunders from Living Daylight. Yeah. Or something like. she would have yeah, she would have been totally Saunders. <laughs> and, 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 and in that sense, they do subvert your expectations and that she lives and Bond die, you know. like. So. But then, yeah, they just don't know what to do with her after that. Yeah. She gets to babysit. She gets quite a nice scene with dr racist dude 
like she has good scenes like they're, yeah. they're, that's not the problem it's just that they're possibly in the wrong movie and she's nearly a character you could have in a reboot like when with the next bond like have that character be there for yeah you know, I, I don't know we, we can talk about that in a while but i but that was the only thing and again no disrespect to her i think she's kind of been underserved by blockbusters in general yeah i felt similar to better in captain marvel it was kind of like okay so she's just roadie <laughs> again yeah you basically know, um, she's there to pave the way for her daughter who will get more to do now my number 11 is the world is not enough which surprised me as much as it surprises you i really enjoyed it this time i, I had so much fun with it you see the the tricky thing with the world is not enough is the thames the thames thames yeah thames? i never know how to say it. uh that boat chase is one of the best scenes in the whole franchise in the whole fucking series it's so so good that whole it thing. is and david arnold's music is perfect even down to the little quippy one-liner in it where bond adjusts his tie and the music <laughs> does the little <laughs> it's 007 pornography that scene it's yeah. so good and then he splashes the traffic warden who is an actual traffic warden in real yeah from just... whatever the bbc reality program was at the time i'm actually tearing up thinking about how cool it is it's so good uh just the rest of the film is kind of a waste for me it's i don't really care there's stuff i like in it my big Brosnan problem is most on show in this, where he's got real flash uncle energy. You know, your rich uncle who like goes on skiing holidays and has got all the fucking gear. And yeah, and going back to Brosnan being hammy, like, and and fair enough, a lot has been said about how Michael Apted was probably not an actor's director, but that scene where he's talking to Electra and he's confronting her and he's like, "There's no point in living unless you can't feel alive." Isn't that your motto, Electra? Isn't that what you always say? It just suddenly we're watching Coronation Street. Like he's not can't like roger moore could do that scene you know any of the other guys could do it and he just kind of can't it's just very hammy and it's very like that's why i love him in mamma mia so much is that that that's where his strengths lie is just being bigger and broader but well yeah it's why i love her love him in like thomas crown affair and um taylor of panama and all that where he's just like he gets to be full brosnan and it works Oof, like even in Thomas Crown Affair, like there's a bit where he says espresso, and you're just like, oh my god, Dad, what are you saying? Like espresso, and he says espresso, like they serve and spar on the side of the road when you're on the motorway. Like I, I, he's just always a bit naff. I don't know, maybe it's because he's Irish, and I, I just feel like I know too many people like him or something. I don't yeah. Know. No, I, I can see that. I, I, I will not have a bad word said about Thomas Cronenfesser. <laughs> Kick-ass movie, yeah, very good. Weirdly, I, I kind of feel, as much as I think Denise Richards gets some unfair shit, and I actually found her really quite likable in it this time when I watched it, I think the big problem for me at the time was that his chemistry with Rene Russo in that film, and they're all, they were of a similar age, was perfect to then sort of put in with a 20-something. It really heightens up the Flash Uncle thing as well. That's, a character that only exists so they can have that Christmas joke at the end. Like, that's a big problem I have with a lot of the films in the Bond series. It's just, why can we not have an actress in her late 30s or 40s with, like, Roger Moore? And, like, the, the one time they did it, it was Octopussy, and it really worked. I forgot to say that. Like, Yeah, and I suppose Monica Bellucci in Spectre. But again, just so... completely underserved completely underserved like but just generally speaking like the, Rachel Weiss was like yeah. literally married to Daniel Craig where's she you know like Leah Sado I I do think she redeemed herself a bit and well like I shouldn't say redeemed it's not her fault but like I do think she had better chemistry with Daniel Craig and No Time to Die but Inspector it's disastrous like she's so young I think the 90s thing particularly with The World Is Not Enough it felt like and Tomorrow Never Dies to be fair it felt like they were picking up copies of FHM 
Oh, totally, yeah. Who's and the then seeing who was hot. And then with the Craig era, it felt a little bit like they were like looking at world cinema films and seeing who took their clothes off in that. Yeah. So it's like, you know. I, it's one thing I never, and it's the problem then is you nearly want the actor playing Bond to be younger because the the, the sexy stuff just works much better then because the, the age gap isn't as egregious, you know? Yeah, it, um, it's a fine line. You can get dangerously close to Roger Moore, Tanya Roberts. Yeah, did, did I have to say by the way, Denise Richards never really particularly bothered me in this. No, she never bothered me. It, it was fine. Again, it was a slightly underserved character. There's little moments in this film that I like. I love is where he does the Bond James Bond thing. It's pure Brosnan it's, cheese, it's, but it it it's really works. British spy, you got a name? The name's Bond. James Bond. No, it's the name's Bond. Fires the thing, shoots yeah. up the shoot. It's just what, I love that. Thing. It's pure 1999. Over the top Brosnan perfection. Fires the thing, the thing launches off. David Arnold, dinner, dinner, James Bond. Yeah, like I, I, I also like that bit. By the way, <laughs> I love David Arnold's score as well. It's possibly my favorite David Arnold score. It's very good. It's very, very, very good. Actually, David Arnold in this one. Yeah, they're, they're um, kind of, and he, he throws in these little submarine kind of, and like, yeah. Oh, David Arnold, we, we said it in the, I, th- I think I mentioned in the last episode I was on with you that I think he's the most underrated blockbuster yeah. composer ever. Like yes, yeah, 100%. So 100%. And um, it's been a big thing that's been missing from the last three Craig films for me. Yeah, no. Uh, and, and you're kind of going like, is it a money thing? Is it like, I, I don't get why they didn't bring him back. I think with Spect, not Spectre, Skyfall, Sam Mendes likes working with Thomas Newman, yeah. Thomas Newman. I think that was it for that. And then I think Hans Zimmer's just the hot shit, so they just got Hans Zimmer. I think I Barbara Broccoli said she met him at a do or something, and they had a conversation about it, and it happened. I do, actually, by the way, people talk shit about it. I do actually like a lot of the Hans Zimmer stuff in No Time to Die. Oh, I d- yeah. It, it's I, nice. It feels nice for a 60th anniversary as well. And and not just the callbacks. Like, I love those, but even the original stuff he does is lovely. Yeah. Like the, 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 the track, I think it's called Matera, where he brings in all the time in the world. He does his own stuff in that as well. And it's really not. And by the way, when I say he, I know it's not probably him. It's like a team of people that work with him that he just writes a little bit of it. Um, And his version of the Bond team, I really like, even though they only kind of use snippets of it, they never really give it a full blast. Uh, and Final Ascent, the, 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 the track where Bond is like ascending at the end and dies, that's a really, really good track. No, I think it's great. I think people just shit on anything, No Time to Die, because they were shitting on No Time to Die. I, I, I think that film will, uh, and, and I, I think we're seeing this with Skyfall now. A lot of younger fans are saying, no, I, I love Skyfall. What are you talking about? Uh, I think No Time to Die will stand the test of time. People will like it in 10 years' time. It, it's going to depend on what the next guy does as well, because everybody, st- everybody loved Brosnan until Daniel Craig up, and then everybody I'm... started shitting on Brosnan. That's also true, yeah. yeah, fair Because everybody was like, Brosnan's the greatest Bond since Connery. And then Craig up, and everyone was like, Brosnan was shit, wasn't he? It's like, well, no, he wasn't. He was just different. <laughs> IGN, if if anyone is doubting what Stuart is saying right now, IGN's review of Die Another Day is still online. You can find it. And in that, they say that Brosnan is the best Bond since Connery. And you never hear people say that anymore. No, even Brosnan doesn't say it. Poor bastard. He just looks so downtrodden every time he talks about Bond night. He does a bit, yeah. A broken man. But Where are you on the whole, and not to get too tangential here, where are you on the whole, oh, he should come back for an old man Bond thing? Because you hear people say that from time to time. No, I think Dalton should come back for an old man Bond, but they kind of took care of that with no time to die. I think, I mean, there's conflicting things as to why Brosnan didn't get a fifth one. 
obviously the Brock, uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson claim it was 9-11 and people didn't want that, which if you look at the box office numbers for Die Another Day, people clearly did want that kind of film. Yeah. And then there's the rumour that Brosnan asked for too much money, which I'd also argue, which if you look at what Die Another Day brought in, just pay the fucker his money. <laughs> and it sounds like they did, they, they, they did pay Daniel Craig anything he ever asked yeah. for. So you're kind of going, well, you know. I, I honestly think it was his talent as an actor. They they just knew there was a limited amount of things they could do with him. And, yeah. You know, I, that's what I think. I'm, he, I'm, he was perfect for what they needed at the time. Perfect for Tomorrow Never Dies, which we still haven't gotten to. We will get to that. What's your number 11? My number 11 is A View to a Kill. Ah, nice. That was low down on mine, so... And it's low down on most. <laughs> Again, I don't hate this as much. It does the unforgivable thing of killing Patrick McNeigh. Yeah, another in 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 many uh, unnecessary deaths in Bond movies. Yeah, um, I'd argue for me, there's a flippancy to the death in this one that Patrick McNee, Chuck Lee, his death is sort of thrown away. There's just the a meanness three. to it when they're gunning down everybody that sort of worked in the mine for Max Shrek. That feels like you know they were like eight is like Commando was really popular. Let's just gun a load of fucking people down, Rob missing Roger out Moore. that in Commando it's kind of fun. Roger Moore didn't, he had a problem with that scene. I know he did, yeah. Oh, yeah. Roger Moore's too old by this point. He's having fun and it's great, but oh, he's God, too he's, old. He's just so desperately old in this, yeah. Um, no, man, sorry. I love A View to a Kill. I know, I know, I everything you just said, I agree with. And Roger Moore is like 80,000 years old in this. <laughs> and it's so ridiculous. And it's just such a cozy, lovely film to open a have a glass of red wine and just watch and John Barry's score and oh, everything about it. Christopher Walken is Christopher great. Walken, the little old man with him. Grace Jones is great. The, the guy Grace Jones is, is great. The, the old man, just <laughs> just top to bottom. Like, and it feels like such a quaint little silly TV movie of a thing. Like, it's like, why? How did this get made? This would never get made now. Yeah, it's just such a cozy, sleepy film. My favorite memory of a View to a Kill ever is. We were in my uh, our summer uh, holiday home, our mobile home in County Wexford, and we were watching a film one day. Uh, we, we we flicked on the television. Uh, Roger Moore was on screen, and I said, "Look, Mom, it's James Bond." And he says, "I'm James Doc from the London Financial Times." And my mom was like, "No, that's not James Bond. That's some other Roger Moore film. It's not James Bond." I was like, "Well, can we just can we just just in case can we just keep watching?" And uh, it's the bit where he's talking to the Gene Hackman lookalike guy, uh, Mayor Howe from the, or not, not, not Mayor Howe. He's like the, at the office of public works in the San Francisco yeah. city hall or whatever. And the guy from murder one. And then, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, Christopher Walken shows up and there's a big thing and there's a big fire and they have to escape. And James, James, Stacy, hold on tight. Reach, reach. And then, and then a Dick Tracy ascended. reference. And then, yeah, he ascends down the ladder and then the, the cop goes, uh, or whatever Stacy goes oh this is James Talk from the London Financial Times and he goes actually no I am Bond James Bond and I was like yeah mom I told you so that's and it and you've got that Barry Yusuf of you to a kill God. in the score and again another film just saved by John Barry I think yeah. it's called um, Fanfare or something like that is the name of the track I mean dun 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 love it love it so much that fire truck chase then afterwards doesn't hold up at all. It's so bad. <laughs> it's ridiculous. As a kid, that was just pure cinema to me. Absolutely loved it. There's there's just so very few things I dislike about A View to a Kill, as bad as it is. Like, I absolutely admit that it is not a good film, but I love it. 
Yeah, no, I, again, I like it. I remember going to my uncle's house in Redden and he'd rented it from the video shop for us all to watch. So I have a fond memory of that. And it's sort of been the last new Bond film I had for a while because, like I say, my dad didn't like Timothy Dalton, so we didn't watch the Daltons until I independently watched them at 16. Like I say, there's a, there's a meanness, there's a nasty streak to it, and God bless Tanya Roberts, but no. No, sorry, man. I, I even like Tanya Roberts in it. I, I'm ashamed That's... to say. It's probably just nostalgia speaking now at this point, but like, and, and I think she has chemistry with Roger Moore. But you know what it is as well? There's that lovely scene at the start where Roger Moore tries to chat her up and then strikes out with her. Yeah, and then and then for most of the film, it's more of a like a father daughter relationship. Like he's more of a like. It's what makes the end so weird. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> my my point was like he spends most of the film just being this like supportive kind of father figure to her nearly, and like there's that bit where he tucks her in and kind of just makes sure that the house is safe. And like there was a perfect opportunity there to have Bond reflect on how he was getting older, and you know, like maybe it was inappropriate for him to strike up a relationship with this woman. And he, he could be there for her in a different way. And then they just ruin it with that shower scene at the end. It's the only scene in the whole film where I'm like, ugh. It's the weird thing, because you had North Sea Hijack around the same time as Fiora's Only. Yeah. In which he plays a cranky, aged expert in what he does. And I kind of felt like that's where they should have gone with his Bond. Not the crankiness so much, but just mm. lent into his age. Yeah, um, yeah, totally, yeah. I will say, though, I am always slightly sad that it's the last Roger Moore film when it ends, when he, when he gives that sort of cheeky wink kind of thing. Yeah, like, he he didn't really have an ending. like the, the, and, and so much of this feels to me like John Glenn and John Barry were kind of secretly putting in these little hints that this is Roger Moore's last one, and we are acknowledging his age, but we just can't say it out loud. Like, there's yeah. a bit when he's climbing down the ladder and he trips and he fa- like you think he's gonna fall like all these little hints that it's like oh no we we know he's older like and we are referring to that but we just can't say it out loud and even the score sounds like just this kind of last kind of final battle of a thing like it's really yeah lovely. I know I kind of feel like he should have left with Octopussy mm. he he was with an age appropriate I could see Bond yeah. and Octopussy having a life after the credits. I agree with that. Yeah, she she does feel like his end game wrong. There's there's two Bond films where the woman he ends the film with, and we'll get to the other one in a bit. Feels like the yeah, I could that. see the Bond life after that of him settling. That this is the one he settles down with, you know, his new Tracy kind of thing. Yeah, I I, I do agree. Octopus, he is unquestionably. Um, yeah. Last thing I'll say about a view to a kill, Electric Picnic, uh, 2017, 2018. Uh, Searsha got tickets. We It's a big festival here in Ireland. And Duran Duran were playing. And they were the last act on the Sunday night. And we had work the next day. And they weren't playing until half ten. And that afternoon I said, oh, do you know what? Maybe we won't go to Duran Duran. And then later on that evening I said, oh, do you know what? I can't, no, do you know what? Let's wait. Let's just, I just, I, I just have to, and one of the best decisions I ever made yeah. in my entire life. And the track came on. Dah! and literally like there was all these 20 year olds who didn't know Duran Duran was and then there was me just screaming yes <laughs> and it was the and Simon Le bon was wearing this great like luminous green biker jacket and it was full on dancing to the fire I was having such a great such time. a great Bond theme it is a magnificent theme tune love it such so a good song. right then we are into the top 10 then my number 10 possibly controversially is Moonraker Lovely, yeah, I respect that, yeah. Moonraker is a film in three parts. Really good, great beginning, wobbles a bit in the middle, just goes batshit crazy at the end, and I love it. Absolutely. 
no no argument here yeah love moonraker too uh, again it was one that was always quite low down for me but the, every time i rewatch it i enjoy it a lot more i mean it's dark as fuck there's a woman who is cruelly killed by dogs you and don't she... see it but it's haunting as shit <laughs> she didn't need to be great and she was Carissa yeah Berry, the name of the actress she's really really good in it i must say yeah really really strong scene and that 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 initial scene where he meets drax and they're yeah. doing the clay pigeons and the you missed Mr. Bond. Did I? We we were filming at a an old country house in County Wexford actually uh, a couple of summers ago for a show I was working on, and there was clay pigeon shooting there. And God in heaven, did we reference that scene every single time? <laughs> you missed Mr. Bond. Did I? Classic, <laughs> just pure classic Roger Moore. And he again, just I I feel like I keep saying it. He looks so beautiful in this film, and the suits he has. The Seiko watch, everything about it is just, and and he's too old by this point. Like he's fifty-one, but he just looks the business. And yeah, a, a woman. Well, you've got that. Michael Lonsdale is great as Drax as well. His look after Mister Bond, see that some harm comes to him. See that, see that some harm comes to him, and he's quite warm to Bond to begin with. I know he's putting it on, but you know where he offers him, you know, tea and sandwich and cucumber sandwich. Oh. Brilliant. Really, really good. The, the only weak link, I think, in Drax's operation is Chang. It's just a little bit too much of an odd job ripoff, I think. No, I like it. I like, like I said, I like that beginning bit. I don't mind where it goes wobbly in the middle and gets a bit silly. The cable car scene's great. It, back projection is painfully clear. but His name is Jaws. He kills people. Like, and everyone used to, I remember growing up, oh, it's such a pity they brought back Jaws. No, it isn't. It's great. Brilliant. Bring him back. I'm so glad they brought him back. He's braces so or no braces? Braces or no braces, yeah. <laughs> no, I like it. I like the sp- st- the set of the space station is great. It's amazing. It's it's really, really cool. And when you hear about how they filmed that, they couldn't yeah. get ILM, so they did it old-fashioned, old-school, back projection, all that stuff, the way they did it. And apparently that movie Moon uh, yeah. in 2009 used all the same techniques. It was all practical. It was all... Yeah. And they brought back a lot of those guys and all that. And yeah, no... It, Really, really good. And I love the the lasers. I love that. Yes. Like, oh, it's stupid should... as fuck, but... Yeah, it should have been the movie that, that sent it over the edge, and yeah. somehow it isn't. I like Lois Charles as well. I think she's good. I think... I love the relationship between M and Bond in that one. Yes, and Bernard Lee's last sort of, film. Yeah, early on, Bernard Lee's kind of got nothing but contempt for Roger Moore's Bond. Yeah. He's like, you are doing my head in, you absolute prick. And in this one, there's quite a nice you know, mutual warmth between the two of them to the point where he's like, you know, 007 says this was in this room, this was in this room. I, I feel like th- like you can see Bernard Lee getting older and sicker and as he does, he just gets friendlier as well, which is yeah. also kind of sweet in its own way. Really, really good stuff. I'm trying to think what else do I really like about Moonraker. Um, the 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 gondola chase as well it is totally ridiculous and I kind of love it like yeah it just has a gondola with full full of gadgets you never the speedboat chase is great the speedboat chase is maybe it it always just feels like okay we're doing another big chase scene it's, that, that, it, it's hard to be a chase too far yeah I'll give you that but... and Drax's headquarters on Earth love it really yeah. really love it with with all the crazy screens and that they they look like paintings over his head and all that. And in fact, in the GoldenEye game, one of the bonus levels is, uh, I think it's called Aztec, and you go to that room and you, you see all those like screens and stuff, and you, you, you see the Moonraker taking off and all that. And obviously the Moonraker laser was like an iconic part of the GoldenEye game. And yeah. Stuff. And they came back in a load of James Bond games after that and all that. So, 
Yeah, I mean, no, it's it's essentially a remake of The Spy Who Loved Me as well. Oh, the scene oh, with yeah. Jaws in the alley where he's walking down the alley towards her. Amazing. That, that's wonderfully fucking creepy. Yeah, really, really good. We were watching. There's, there's horror films that can't hit uneasiness like that film does. We were watching it recently, and like you see Jaws with the giant head in the background, and it's like a clown head or something like that. And Saoirse was watching it with me, and she was like, "Oh my god, look at that clown in the in the back of the shot there!" And she like she was creeped out by it before it ever even came into frame. Um, really, really, really good. I'm I'm so glad they brought Richard Keel back. I get people's problems. I it, maybe it is a bit goofy. I do think the. I don't know what that piece of music is called, but that was a touch too far for me in terms of silliness when they played that. But uh, I do like that they brought him back, and I kind of like that they redeemed him as well. And yeah, to speak and stuff. Yeah, that never bothered me. And the no. final, like, whatever about it being silly and over the top and all that, the, the final kind of bit where Bond is in the spaceship and he's trying to shoot down all the, mi- the not the missiles, the, the pods. Before they... That, that really tense and really well done and classic Roger Moore kind of tension scene again, you know? It's, it's the Death Star Trent run, isn't it? <laughs> totally, totally. And look, that's what we're doing. Even now. to the point where he switches off his targeting system and uses the force. But... It's it's amazing that we haven't haven't really done, we haven't really talked about how often the Bond series does that. Like, you know, it's like, okay, exploitation is popular, Live and Let Die. Kung Fu movies are popular, Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. You know, Star Wars, Moonraker, you know, like... And this is probably the most, and will always be the most egregious example. But like, why not? Yeah. And it made a bunch of money and people liked us. Why not? We well, yeah, I'd argue this and License to Kill very much leans into those 80s drug cartel movie kind of. And Skyfall is literally the Bond Knight. The, the, yeah. The Empire, Empire, literally the headline of their review was the Bond Knight. Why not? But, but yeah, exactly. But they do their own thing with it. It never feels like an egregious ripoff of the thing that is popular, with the exception of Quantum of Solace. Yes, actually, yeah, yeah. Quantum of Solace is the one where it kind of go. It, it just didn't work there. Every all the other ones, I'm kind of like, I've no problem with it. It's kind of fine. It keeps it. It keeps the. It keeps the fire lit. It's you know. I, I I'd rather James Bond continue to exist and and crib from things as stylishly as it has done than not exist at all. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. No problem. All right, then you're number 10. Number 10 is Dr. No. Yeah, I mean, I had it sort of in the middle. It's fine. It's great. It's it's the first Bond film. It's finding its feet. Yeah. Sort of laying the groundwork, but not building on it yet. Nice and simple. I would always have said that. And then I watched it recently and I went, oh, my God. Like, it's almost like they predicted all the things people were going to love about James Bond yeah. 60 years ago. They Like, the only thing missing from it is Q giving him the Aston Martin from Goldfinger. If that scene was somehow in Doctor No, it would be one of the best James Bond movies ever. Like, it's... it. I, I can't believe... Like, the, there's nothing in Doctor No where they kind of anticipated that that part of the mythos would be this huge thing, and then it wasn't. Well, m- maybe... <laughs> Maybe some of the music choices. That's it. Like everything. I, I just love it. Like the casino scene at the start is so good. The Ken Adams sets are so good. Dr. No himself is so good. Like he's arguably better than any of the Blofelds, I would say. And he's kind of serves the same purpose. Like he, yeah. for all intents and purposes, feels like he might be the leader of Spectre. All the sets are great. Ursula Andress is great. The the the, the scene where Bond uh, confronts Professor Dent is like, will always be one of the most iconic scenes of the whole yeah. series. You've had your six. Uh, trivia, he's not even shooting a Walter PBK in that scene. It's a great scene. It's It probably tells you everything you need to know about Bond in that mm. scene. Sylvia Trench, love it. 
like I struggle to think of things that I don't like about Doctor No. Really, really yeah, exactly the same. It's just there are better Bond films for me or Bond films that I enjoy more, possibly yeah, rather than better. But again, it's the to get a start that strong. My friend Parker, who I often mention and has yet to appear on any of our podcasts, um, made a great point that his alternate ending for No Time to Die is that James Bond didn't die. And instead of ending with We Have All the Time in the World, it ends with him waking up on a desert island, uh, you know, having lost his memory and under the mango, underneath the mango tree starts playing. I, nice. I actually think, I like I think that. that I think that would have been a really cool like like Dark Knight Rises type ending where it's like no actually he did survive kind of thing. yeah looks over yeah. and Quarrel Juniors there <laughs> that 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 was a song when I was a kid I was like why are they playing this song so much I, but now watching the film I'm like that that's a great song and it's really kind of got this really kind of haunting kind of melancholy quality to it and it feels very very Fleming yeah and like even when Bond starts singing it at one point you're like this just works like it, it's just I don't know really really good. It's a nice way of letting her know that he's a friend kind of thing, isn't it? It's Yeah. Yeah, like I say, it's a very strong start. There's a couple of the Bond cocktail elements missing, but it's the foundation on which they built. All right, then, my number nine is For Your Eyes Only. For Your Eyes Only, I think I had a number 20. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, you had it quite low. <laughs> I really like this one. It's the one, like I said, Norsey Hijack that leans into Roger's age. Possibly not enough, but it leans into it a bit more. Um, the pre-title sequence is silly. It's done as a fuck you to Kevin McClory. Also pretty great, though. It is. <laughs> I have an unofficial revenge trilogy, which is On a Majesty's Secret Service, Licensed to Kill, and then this one. Oh, and then, oh, that's interesting. I thought you were going to say For Your Eyes Only and then Licensed to Kill. No. That's interesting. So you get okay. Bond's wife dies in On a Majesty's Secret Service when Bond's going for revenge against Blofeld. He can't avenge his wife, so he avenges Felix's in Licensed to Kill. And then you get the throwaway thing, which you can ignore, but then it's Bond reflecting on the dissatisfaction of revenge in this film. God, that that that's a really interesting... Yeah, I never thought about that before. That's that's Yeah, I like that. That's, that's my Bond revenge trilogy. And I think because Roger Moore is older as well, it works better after License to Kill. And, you know, it reflects... We'll get to it with License to Kill, but there's a bit at the end of License to Kill where he's killed Sanchez and he just has this moment of like, huh... Yeah, like it wasn't as satisfying as he thought it would be. It's not fixed anything that he's feeling, kind of thing. Um, but again, we'll get into that a bit more with license to kill. God, I'm I'm kind of blown away by that. That's a really that's a really cool way to watch them. Actually, I like that. Yeah, I just like his reflection on revenge in this. I know it's done as a throwaway thing at the beginning with him dropping Blofeld in in smokestack. Are we saying Blofeld is dead then? Like, or or first of all, is that Blofeld? Because in my uh, legally no. Legally, no. In my essential Bond book by Lee Pfeiffer and Dave Worrell, they refer to him as villain in wheelchair. <laughs> and they never say that it's anything to do with Blofeld or anything like that. And obviously that that's an official authorized book, so they couldn't. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's it. It's I mean, it's it's painfully obvious who it is, but even to the point where he's visiting Trace's grave. L- lovely that he does, though. Like, it is. I like the slowed down, scaled back pace of this after Moonraker. It's a nice palate cleanser. It works really well when you're watching them. You can sort of, again, you can have a quite a nice little trilogy of Spy Love Me, Moonraker, and this one as well, just within yeah. the Roger films. I like T'Pol. I like this relationship with T'Pol. I like like how you set up to think he's the bad guy. And then I like his thing with Lady Cassandra. You, I don't, you know, I don't he, like He feels her death. I don't like, yes, I totally agree. Cassandra Harris is amazing in this. She's only in like two scenes, really? Like, yeah. I don't like um, Julian Glover. Like, he's just. I, I mean, I don't dislike him, but he just doesn't have any 
Bond villain gravita the way and I think that's a common problem in the 80s Bond movies is that none of them are like other than Zarin and Sanchez none of them are iconic like they're not like yeah no that's fair and he is textbook example of that and for me it's just like I absolutely agree I love Roger Moore in this and I kind of wish we had a second Roger Moore performance like this one where he's totally playing it straight and what I love he's not just playing it straight and being a badass he's also really sensitive and really kind of compassionate towards Carol Bechet's character whose name I forget like he's just really it feels like he's really listening to her and he's really kind of supporting her like he's not just trying to get a cheeky shag and and I just think that just makes it so much more interesting and engrossing to watch him throughout the whole thing and the the whole thing then when the ally character dies and he gets revenge on that character Locke like this is for what was the what was the character's name and and he throws the dove into the car like that's a great scene I know Roger Moore had a problem with it but it, that you know oh no I think it's perfect for that film I don't think yeah I'm not really sure on Roger Moore's issue with it I'd argue it's it feels more like his bond than you know beating up Maud Adams. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. Yeah, like that Maud Adams thing feels more like a Connery. Thing uh, Luigi, Luigi, yeah. But uh, that that's a great. Like there there are so many great bits in it, and the skiing, all the stunts are great. The mountain climb. My problem with it is I mentioned earlier on, like when you're when you're watching like dialogue between the characters, it's just a big locked off wide, and they're just talking to each other, shot reverse shot, shot reverse shot, and it just feels like a TV movie. Yeah, I can see that. There's a weird bit when there's like a crash zoom on Locke's face, or is it Locke or Charles Dance? I can't remember because Charles Dance is in this movie for two scenes. And like it's a crash zoom and it feels like a TV, like it really, really feels like a TV movie in that bit. And just like the best action movies ever made were made in the 80s. Why did why did the Bond movies never look like those? You know, the kind of yeah. And I feel like the answer might unfortunately be John Glenn. Like I just don't think he was the direct, I think he loved action scenes. But I don't think he loved dialogue. I think he was like, let's get everybody home on time and let's not really worry about making these look like, you know, a big... I like John Glenn a bit more than you, I think. But I think he was kept around for so long because he was efficient. Efficient, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think that was the John Glenn thing. I think that's what kept him around for so long. I mean, by all accounts, he wasn't going to come back after License to Kill. Um, I think they realised that he'd run his course by then. Yeah, well, I, I think they just, they probably realized they need to make a splash. Like they need to actually really put their best foot forward. Yeah. And, and to be fair, in many ways, I think we need to go back to some of the John Glenn philosophies of, you know, the action is what people are here for. And yeah. he he still did the best action scenes ever in James Bond. Now, hang on a second. Sorry. The best action scene ever is the Moonraker Skydive. Did he have anything to do with that? Possibly second unit on that may, one. He may have been second unit on that one. Yeah. But like some of the other best action scenes are also in John, John, John Glenn films, you know? Yeah. But yeah, just the dialogue stuff always bothers me when I go back. And it's not a problem when you go back to like Lewis Gilbert or or even like Terrence Young, like knew how to shoot back in those days, you know? Yeah. It's, it, and especially Peter Hunt. We haven't gotten to that film yet, but we'll get no. to that. All right then, what was your number nine? Number nine is Skyfall. Skyfall's fine. It was the film for the 50th, so I get why people were so enamored with it it doesn't hold up for me i think part of its problem is i don't care about bond's backstory i don't need it it. (laughs) it's it's a bit like you know han solo everything i needed to know about han solo i knew in that first cantina scene in star wars anything before that's just padding that's you know but then (laughs) yeah no i get it that some people like it i just 
it was it's never not, something I needed with Bond. That, that's not even re- like that. That's kind of only really part of the film as well. Though. Yeah, no, I know. It's. I mean, they, they do it more Inspector, to be fair. But this sort of lays the groundwork of. I think yeah. part of the charm of Bond is that there's a mystery to his backstory. We know his parents died when he was young, and I think there still is, though. Like I, th- I, you know, I, I know we we go to his home, we meet the groundskeeper or whatever, I, you know. But I, I think there still is a mystery to his character. Like we, we don't know like why he and if you're listening, Eon, don't make films out of this. We don't know why he entered the service. We don't know why he did a lot of stuff. We don't know how he really became who he did. Like in Casino Royale, he's pretty fully fledged, even though. He still has a couple of things to learn, but like, no, yeah. I, I, what I, what I really love about it is just the malaise at the start of the film when he's kind of just beaten down and, or sorry, after the pre-titles credits when he's, you know, taking time off and he's just popping pills and drinking Heineken and going down and <laughs> doing scorpion things. I, I just think all that is just really cool and evocative and really reminiscent of the books like and i think daniel craig said at the time he's like oh yeah we went back and read all the books and we really wanted to capture that and this one and they really did and the like the the way it's shot most unlike specter it's every scene just looks incredible yeah every scene looks amazing that macau scene was shot in the fucking pinewood studios and it looks like the most exotic place you've ever seen it's incredibly well done and daniel craig looks amazing is just i don't know i look i get people's problems with it yeah silva's problems silva's plot is ridiculous silva's the things he gets away with in the movie are just it's the same problem with the dark knight it's like oh so he planned it exactly right that the train would crash in just such a direction you know what whatever man you know I just, yeah i i can and, and bypass all that stuff if you want to start picking yeah. plot threads in bond films you can do it no. for every single one of them yeah no i love all that stuff and the final the final showdown, I kind of go back and forth on the final showdown, but the, the most recent time I watched it, I, I remember just thinking how cool it was that they were able to light it without lights. They lit yeah. it all with just that fire, and then it ends in that really ugly, really Fleming kind of bit where it's just a knife going in the back of the guy's back, and he and he succeeded in his plot, but, you know, loved all that. And then and then we, ba- we end up back in Mallory's office, and, you know, just very little to complain about. I think Severin, the character Severin is probably the biggest problem I have with Skyfall. And yeah. The way it, like, it is a bit problematic. Like, and I, I don't think it's quite as bad as people make it out to be, but I think they walk themselves into a corner with that one where he just walks into the shower and they immediately start getting along famously. Like, there should have been... Yeah, after she'd just given her backstory, it felt a little bit... It's just not not great, guys, you know? And I, I feel like it may have been an editing thing more than a, an actual story. Like, they, yeah. if they... If they Established it a bit more, maybe it would have worked. Uh, Naomi Harris is great. Ben Wishaw is great. We have a couple of gadgets back again, sort of like they're great, you know. Um, yeah, I really like it. The only thing, both Sam Mendes films, the action is not iconic. There's no iconic action scenes. And yeah, he's not an action director. It's part of the problem. I get what they were going for, but he really isn't. And I I listened to him on Roger Deakins' um, podcast one time, and he was talking about how. The old Bond movies used to use second unit directors like John Glenn to just direct all the action. And then the main director would direct the the important kind of, you know, dialogue stuff. And uh, that's how they shot Casino Royale. And guess yeah. what? Best action of the Daniel Craig. Yeah. You know, uh, so I think maybe they could learn a little bit of a lesson and maybe go back to that. If, if that was what worked for them for so long, you know. 
that's the only kind of big thing with Skyfall. And I know that dirt bike chase at the start, they were like, oh yeah, this is going to be better than the parkour chase of Casino Royale. It's not. No. Sorry, guys. It's not. It's no, fun. it's um, it's fun. It's solid, but it's not better. Whereas there's one the- really clunky on the nose bit of dialogue for me that I really just does me every time. And it's when he flips the thing, when M says that the DB5 isn't very comfortable and he flips the thing to reveal the eject button. And she says, oh, go on then, eject me. It's like, we didn't need that line. Yeah, we didn't need that. Yeah, yeah. She, she, if she just said, oh, go on then, you know, that would have been enough. But, it's uh, as clunky as fucking forcing in dialogue about his watch in Casino Royale. W- where are you at in terms of, because I know this is a big problem with people, oh, it doesn't make sense in this universe. He never got the DB5. And like, where, where do you stand on all that? Because so we see him get a DB5 in Casino Royale, and now he suddenly has the Goldfinger one in Skyfall. I just assumed he won that. He won it with company money, maybe. So they took it off him and they kitted it out and then they gave it back to him. Or they let him use his car for a mission and they kitted it out for him. Perfect. That's, that's my headcanon on it. Grant, yeah, move on. Like, people get so obsessed over that stuff. It's or like... even just on the slide, he was like, can you put some fucking gadgets in this? It's my personal car. You know, if ever I get into some shit when I'm off duty, Again. it would be handy to have some stuff. Something James Bond from the books probably would have done. Like he was big into kitting stuff out himself in the books and all that. And like you don't actually no. see it do anything, do you? He reveals the ejector button, but there's also nothing that actually says it is an ejector button other than M go in, which is why I think it would have been better he if it was just implied. He oh, he does use the machine guns, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Which which I loved. Like yeah. I, I what and part of what I love about the I love how pissed off he is when they blow the car up as well. Going back to my earlier thing, like you know every universe has the broad strokes on every bond actor like this bond actor has probably had some of the adventures we've seen or some version of them and maybe goldfinger happened i don't know like and they made well, yeah because we never see daniel craig's peak bond do we we either got him a wet behind the ears brand new double o or a slightly over the hill damaged one so the pre-title sequence of skyfall is possibly the closest we get to his peak bond and then he gets fucked up I, I think he's playing peak Bond Inspector. I, I, I think as bad as that, as much yeah. as, you know, I think he's peak Bond in that. But I, I, yeah, but like for me, when I watched it recently, I was like, everyone always goes on about all oh, the over the hill stuff. Like, it's actually not as prevalent as you think it is. Like, I think it's, it's quickly forgotten. It's there for a bit. And then yeah. sort of like when he fights the guy in, forgot where they are, when he has to really nicely backlit. Yes, I've also forgotten that place. Um, it's it sort of played up a little bit there. And then it's kind of like after that, like, nah, fuck it. We need him to be yeah. able to do this now. And and sorry, we, we haven't said it yet, but Javier Bardem, incredible. Really, Superb. really, really good. Absolutely brilliant. And so much so that it doesn't bother me that they're just doing Julian Assange, which is kind <laughs> of dodgy in its own way. But like, it's really, where they started really picking Oscar winners for their Bond villains. And I, I think he was one of the ones, one of the rare occasions in the series where they went, they wrote the character for him and then they yeah. got him. Whereas like Elliot Carver was supposed to be Anthony Hopkins. And there's lots yeah. of examples. Allegedly of until they said, you know, when we got a script, it's going to be really good. And he was like, you what? Yeah. And, and then Zarin was supposed to be David Bowie, which would have been cool. He yeah. Love Christopher Walken. You know, a lot of examples like that. But yeah, brilliant. Like, and I think one of the... the big problem with Javier Bardem's character is that they completely undermine him in Spectre by implying that he was part of that as well. Yeah. It's like there's not fit at all. Doesn't doesn't work. Doesn't make any sense. And what like Sam Mendes? Why would you undermine your own movie? Like, fair enough. Yeah. Is it a different director coming in doing it? I'd understand. But like, yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. Skyfall should have been its own bubble within the middle of a bubble kind of thing. Yeah. And like, if you want to make it a big longer arc, yeah, it still works because Bond is learning in this film that like 
you know, he's grown closer to M and he views her as a mother figure and they repeatedly refer to her as mother, and then she dies and you yeah. can't save her. And like that feeds into his arc in no time. Like, great. Don't make Silver working for Spectre. That doesn't make any sense. Well, no, because Silver's issue isn't even with Bond, really. It's no. with M. Yeah. You know, Bond's the guy in between in the way kind of thing. Yeah, no, I I I super solid. And again, I going back to, you know, a lot of people go, Oh, you'd never watch a Daniel Craig movie. Like Skyfall is a perfect Christmas Day movie. And I know loads of young fans, like people in their 20s who really, really like Skyfall. And that was the movie that got them into it. You know, you hear people say nobody likes anything after Casino Royale. I think Skyfall is a, a beloved film by everyone except certain hardcore Bond fans. I mean, I question hardcore Bond fans, to be honest. Yes, I think I some people just like shitting on the thing because it's the current thing. It's not like it used to be. It's usually the kind of people who generally type somewhere in a reply uh, go woke, go broke. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. I just think it's. I think it is overrated, and there are things with it I do have problems with, but I do enjoy it. It's not a tire fire or anything like that. It's still a problem. Like you say, if I'm channel hopping and it's on and it's got to a particular bit, it's like, well, there are really good bits coming up. And sometimes with those ones, I like just watching to wait for the gun barrel at the end. Yeah, that's my I big see. issue with that one is that it didn't open with the gun barrel. It really should have done by that point. Yeah, and I get what he was doing, and he had the thing where it was like the gun bar was actually happening in the scene or whatever, but it wasn't powerful enough to do it. Yeah, I just Bond films don't shouldn't open like any other film for me. Yeah, if anything, they should have done the gun barrel twice because <laughs> it, it does work really, really well at the end in this one. I think with the fifty years and all that coming up, I think that's really cool when that happens. Um, but yeah, no, it would have been lovely to have it at the start. Yeah, no, I won't. I won't disagree there. All right, then. So number eight, then, for me is Goldfinger. Very good. Uh, number eight for me is Living Daylights. My number seven is The Living Daylights. Ah, perfect. I really like this one. It's one of my favorites. The thing that holds it back for me is Weak Villains. I'd argue it's got the best introduction of a Bond, that um... reshoot shot of Dalton turning around as 006 falls. The one that looks a little bit like George Lazenby. Yeah. I, I I think Casino Royale is better again, but I, I do think it's a very, very strong introduction. And I think it's great It's just such they... a cool shot. And like I say, the fact it was a reshoot as well, they just did it at the end of the pickup shot. Yeah. and, and fact, That's not shot on the Rock of Gibraltar, is it? It's shot in a studio. It was shot in Pinewood. And in fact, I know I keep giving out about John Glenn, like the fact that he went back and did that. And I think in License to Kill, there's a lot of examples where they couldn't do things like that because they didn't have the luxury of a, of a Pinewood. That whole scene is great. Again, I keep saying John Barry, that the John Barry score in this is badass. And like, fair enough that the Bond theme, it feels a little bit too much like the Roger Moore version, but like it is kind of dent dent. Dun, dun, dun. Like he kind of ups the tempo. Oh, I love it. Ice like... Chase. Ice Chase is one of my favorite pieces of John Barry music. Oh, really, really good. That opening title sequence is great. And you can see where Nolan ripped it off for Batman Begins. When Batman says to Henry Ducard, um, I don't have, I can't kill you, but it doesn't mean I have to save you. Then he smashes a window and does the thing. Bond does the exact same thing, smashes the window, pulls his parachute. Ah. We we uh there's a whole other episode on Christopher Nolan and James yeah. Bond. <laughs> but, Again, uh, that's that's uh, one I one I hadn't noticed before actually. There's another it's, one. It's almost there. shot for shot. Yeah, that's uh that's pretty cool. Obviously slightly um, different because he's in a train, but Oh man, but... like Big Dalton is such a breath of fresh air in this one though, isn't it? Oh he is. Again, the only thing that he's underserved by is that I I maintain it was a script written for Piers Brosnan. Yeah, yeah, I get I get that vibe. A lot of people say it's a script written for Roger Moore and it's not. They'd cast oh. Brosnan by this point. 
and they just then tweaked it. And there's that lovely photo of Pierce Brosnan with John Glenn holding a uh, clapperboard for the Yeah, Lizard and <laughs> Miriam Diablo, isn't it? Because oh, I maintain goodness. if this was a Brosnan film, the magic carpet ride would have been in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 it, that, that scene is on the DVD, is it? It is, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I've never seen an actor look so uncomfortable with what he's having to do. But, but then you're like, if Brosnan was in this, would the sniper scene be as good? And would the, 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 that scene with Pushkin in the hotel room is just one of the best James Bond scenes ever, man. It's so good. When That's it's like, cold as shit. Get down on your knees and turn around, put your hands on your head. It's like, oh. That was like, bloody I, I, I stupid. Bloody stupid. Um, I think Dalton himself changed that scene or something, didn't he? he I, made it I think so. More. Again, I think Dalton got a little bit more, not as much as Daniel Craig, but I think Dalton got the chance to sort of inject some of himself. I know that there's conflicting things now, but they did want Dalton for years. Yeah, they asked him for uh, Majesties. Majesties, and then they asked him again before Roger Moore for Live and Let Die, I think it was. And then they asked him again for Fioris only. No, Octopussy, when Roger Moore was holding out for more money. And honestly, thank God that didn't happen. Yeah, no, I think possibly A View to a Kill should have been... No, same not, not, no, it wouldn't be View to a Kill as we have View to a Kill. It would be Timothy Dalton's View to a Kill. Oh, I think it probably would have been, though. Like, I, I, Well, I mean, it would have been Timothy Dalton's, but it still would have been weak in all the same ways. Like, I think... No, I'm glad it was this one, I have to say. And I've... Oh, yeah, no, yeah, this is... I don't... Brosnan was way too young at this point. And, oh, God, I just keep going back to that scene. As long as you're alive, we'll never know what cost comes. He's just so sinister and so brilliant. And, God, you know what I've noticed, like, as I get older as well is... Timothy Dalton is fucking sexy in both of yeah. these movies. And as a kid, I used to think, oh, yeah, Timothy Dalton, he's he's not as good looking as Pierce Brosnan. He's not, a, you know, like, it, you know, women wouldn't fall in love with him. As I get older, like any time I watch the movies with women, I'm always like, what do you, what, what do you think of Timothy Dalton? They're like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, Timothy he's Dalton, got that yeah. bassist energy. Yeah. You know, the broody bassist. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. He's just, I, I think it's just that, he just has this coldness to him, but he's also, you can tell that he's also very compassionate as well. Like he, he just, I mean, he's a Shakespearean actor. Like he just has a romance about him. That's just so compelling. And like, there's that great bit where he's doing the kind of proto parkour over the, uh, the, the, the buildings after they've done the fake assassination of Pushkin. Assassination. Yeah. And they do the actual gun barrel in the whatever. And like all these women just like step up and start looking at him. because He's so awesome. And he's just like, yeah, man. Yeah, I could see it. He's so good in this. Like, he's just, he's playing Kara for most of the movie as well. Like, he never tells her that he's working against Koskoff and he's just trying to find out what he's up to. Proper sinister Fleming stuff, you know? And I don't think, like, some of it feels a bit problematic in some ways. And, like, like Kara's a little bit stupid, I think, in some bits. Um, Mariam Diablo is great, though. Like, no, no disrespect to her. And I, I do feel like Koskoff feels like a relic of the Roger Moore era in a, in a way. And Whitaker is just has no business in the movie. Yeah, but... I think it works for Carr in this film. I think it gets away yeah. with it. I, one of my favorite Timothy Dalton bits is when he's in the plane cockpit and he's telling her to drive the cheap round and into the back and she's just not getting it. He's going to roll his eyes like, oh, fuck's sake. Underrated MVP of the movie, Necros. That yes. guy rules so good. And like the Bond movie, the Bond movies have a habit of kind of like ripping off Red Grant a lot. This guy is probably the best one, like in terms of the like Red Grant also runs. Andreas Wisniewski, I think the actor's name is. And he's absolutely yeah, the first great. terrorist Bruce Willis kills in Die Hard. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's so if, gas like Die Hard for me is like the film with all these actors that were also in James Bond whereas yeah. I feel like when people see them in the Dalton movies they're like oh yeah that's the guy from Die Hard it's like no that's the guy from Living Daylights and Life <laughs> If we're going for MVPs and that, it's got to be Green. Fuck, what's his number? The guy who has the fight with Necros in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. And he gets the fucking rashers in his face. That's it. If anybody deserves a spin-off movie, it's that fucker. I refuse to believe he's dead. And again, just like, just really quietly. And I I know I've been talking shit about John Glenn a lot, but he liked his Fleming. And that's Fleming, like putting rashers in a guy's face. It's just nice to see a guy that isn't Bond putting up a fight like that as well. Because usually those yeah. fuckers are taken out. Well, I mean, you see several of them are taken out with exploding milk bottles. and. Yeah, I agree. Like, you kind of want to see other members of British intelligence be as competent as that. Because surely they must be if they've yeah. produced this man who saved the world so many times. And in in some ways, he's more competent than Bond, who at the end keeps shooting at Whitaker's fucking face shield instead yeah. of shooting the fucker in the gut. It's like, clearly the bullets are bouncing off it, Tim. Fire somewhere else. <laughs> A character too many and a scene too many. Yeah. Don't don't get the Whittaker stuff at all, I have to say. And like, in fact, any time someone says, well, what's the plot of the villain, the Living Daylights? I'm like, um, diamonds and there's opium, opium there and, and it's I, weapons. You know, like I just love Timothy Dalton and I, I love that there's a weird kind of defection plot going on. Like they, they were still getting away with doing Cold War plots this late into the 80s. Really I awesome. love that Dalton, I love his whole, you know, M can fire me, I'll thank him for it little speech with Saunders. I love that he's a guy who's like reached a point where he's like, I don't give a fuck anymore. And again, just totally like they just lifted that off the page. Really, yeah. really good. The Aston Martin in this as well. I mean, it was so cool. They brought it back for No Time to Die. Really, really loved it. Possibly my favorite Aston. Stops corrosion. Like he, everyone's always like, oh, Timothy Dalton didn't do great with the puns. No, he's fucking he did. funny in this. He's got a dry, dead fan wit. Like, it's a very dark delivery. And the Aha song's great. I know it broke John Barry, but... Despite know, the what Aha that song is great, and despite uh, what that music of 007 documentary will tell you about it being Duran Duran, it wasn't. It was Aha that fucking broke John Barry. And and what when he finally incorporates that song into the score, it's badass, yeah. man. When when Kara's driving the jeep at the end, dun, 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 really really good, really liked it. So the way he incorporates the Pretenders song as well, well Pretenders songs. Yeah, and the way they actually play the Pretender song is a kind of like ominous kind of foreshadowing that Necross is about to come and fuck yeah. up. Really good, really good stuff. And the the Schmierspionum, the Schmierspionum thing in this movie is a big reason for why I have my own personal canon that like this is its own un like Timothy Dalton is its own universe because Pushkin has that line where he's like, oh Schmierspionum, that was an old thing from Stalin's time. That's like so long ago. That's not been a thing for decades. But in From Russia with Love, they specifically referenced Smirsh. They so. And this is supposed to be the same guy? So, no, it's not the same guy. It's a different guy. It's a different universe. Yeah, that's why I say it's a loose continuity of stories from unreliable sources kind of thing. Because Sliding timeline. I'll I'll take that over the, it's a code name and it's a different guy each time. Just anybody who wants to say that can just leave. Like, I've I've fallen out with people over that over the years. I'm just like, how dare you? Don't bring this into my parish, please. Which is something I think stems completely from Casino Royale 67 which a oh, big the, plot the, point of that is that they are codenamed James Bond. Yeah, everyone is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is so strange when you think that like that was a film all about how multiple people can be James Bond at a time when only one actor was known for playing James Bond. Yeah. And then James Bond went on to be this thing that everybody knew as being a thing that multiple people have. It's just crazy when you think. 
like foreshadowing like one of the most you know iconic recasting things of popular culture it's great and like i say this it's flawed but it's a very strong re- and it was the kick in the ass that the franchise needed after yeah. the roger moore ones the roger moore ones had gotten stale I'm, no matter how much i enjoy them now and they were still incredibly popular then and people still really liked roger moore at the time but they they had become i mean timothy Dalton says it in every single method they've become pastiche I, I i don't know how the first three john glenn roger moore movies made any money like even even the one like free is only is objectively a good movie i don't know how it made any money and octopus i can kind of kind of see how that really but like the other two i'm just like what's going on here like they they had no business being made. And that, that's a big part of why when people say, oh, you know, they only make Bond movies every five years now. It's like five years is too long, but they should never go back to two years. Like, I don't think they'll ever do that again. And I don't think they should. I think. No, I, be... I'd like it to go back to every two years just purely for more Bond in my life. But at the same time, I'd rather they went. I think three years is a perfect gap. I think three. Yeah, three. Three. You start developing it while you're doing yeah. your current one like they used yeah. to. And then you just spend a little bit more time refining it. I mean, with this one as well, it was the first time in my lifetime that Bond changed actors that I was there for. I remember the Pierce Brosnan, then it becoming Timothy Dalton. I remember Timothy Dalton on the side of buses. I remember how exciting that was, that it was a different James Bond. Yeah. Shredded Wheat gave you free cards, and I remember all that hype for it, and then, I don't know, just disappeared. <laughs> and and, and what, what what were people's reactions? on? The, like, did people universally like him or was there a sense of oh. see beyond that i don't know i remember the hype because i would have been seven or eight yeah it was 87 so yeah seven slash eight depending on when it came out i remember the hype for it i remember all my friends at school being excited about it but like i say my dad didn't like timothy dalton for whatever reason mm. so my, my we just experience, didn't watch him from that point my experience growing up was you know i loved license kill as a kid watching it on tv and I was just constantly hearing people say that Timothy Dalton was really bad and that the franchise was nearly over because of him and that Pierce Brosnan was great and that he was the best Bond since Connery and all that. I was like, what about that Timothy guy? He was awesome. Bring him. Well, like, you know, why did people not like him? Yeah, it's well, now we know he was ahead of his time, unfortunately. <laughs> what I will say is I don't know that the franchise would have survived if they just made a third Dalton movie in 1991 as much as I would dearly love to have seen that that to me is probably the biggest you know w- what if of the franchise yeah but, uh, I, I don't I think it would have just petered out I don't think it would have I think no, the, I... the gap and the golden eye of it all I think that was probably the best way to go yeah all right what was your num- number seven commercial would love uh, right that's nine number six so I was always middling on this one and then I saw it in the cinema BFI re-released it in 20... 20... Early 2000s, I think it was. And it was the first time I saw a Bond film in HD as well, or an old, a classic Bond film in HD. Seeing it in the cinema, we'll come to it with um, Living Daylights and License to Kill I saw in the cinema last year when they did. It was like I'd never seen those films before. Yeah. It was amazing how different it was. Everybody always says about how License to Kill looks like the most TV movie of them all. Big screen, completely different experience. I've heard that. And from Russia with Love, I just, it was always the slow one when I was a kid. It's very Hitchcocky. Yeah. It's, it's the Hitchcock Bond. I, yeah, I just love it. I think it's Connery's best film. I don't think it's the film that Connery's best in. Yeah, I think I that's possibly that. Goldfinger Thunderball is Pete Connery. I, I think it is a true espionage film for adults. Yeah. It, do, it doesn't, it's not really one that you watch when you're a kid and go, oh my God, from Russia with love. Yay. 
Like it's it's a proper like there's a scene in this where James Bond is on his knees and Red Grand is like now kiss my foot yeah like that that's like if that happened in a Daniel Craig movie I'm like oh James Bond never do that whatever like you know it's a proper Fleming and the whole plot is based around a sex tape like yeah it's it 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 is a proper it's totally Hitchcock vibes like if if any of the Sean Connery movies are guilty of cribbing from you know, other popular things that were going on around at the same time. It, it was this one. Like, this one is the Hitchcock Bond, totally. Um, and and like you say, it's not, it's absolutely not one that you kind of go, oh, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. I don't want to go to bed yet. Stick on a Bond movie. It's never going to be from Russia with Love. But like, when you actually make the appointment to sit down and watch it, it is so good. And again, yeah. I mentioned Thunderball and the Spectre stuff and Thunderball. The Spectre stuff in this is great. And that wasn't in the book. They added Spectre into the movie because they kind of thought they wanted to lean away from the whole the Russians being the ultimate bad guys. Yeah. They want to, and that was a great decision, I think. Like it makes the movie better because it's like Spectre pitting the Russians against uh, against the Brits or whatever, and it works really, really well. And Connery is top form in it. John Barry just kind of you really, really notice the difference because Dr. No was Monty Norman. Yeah, John Barry freed from the constraints of Monty Norman. Yeah, like, Dr. No, like, as much as I like the Bond theme in it, like, a lot of the score feels like a shitty B-movie score, whereas For Russia Would Love, it's like John Barry just, like, claiming ownership over the franchise straight away, and it's just brilliant. It's so good, and there's so many just great little elements in it. Um, it's another one where you're kind of, when you're asked to describe the plot, you're like, well, it's... it's um, the, you know, there's the sex tape, and then there's the yeah. It's it's really... living daylights again, isn't it? Living daylights is very from Russia with Lovely, just a bit more action. There's there, there's the lector, and everyone's trying to get the lector, and it's all this, and then there's the train, and then he fights on the train, and you know, Red Grant, amazing. Red Grant, you feel the deaths of the characters that yeah, you sort of come to love, yeah. Like how many how many kind of like side characters like that can you name in Bond movies? Like Karim Bay is one of the one of the main ones. Yeah, like he's one of the best ones. Like I say, as you get to the later Roger Moore ones, it's so flippant with yeah. VJ, with I couldn't even name Patrick Mooney. He kind of does the, you know, you'll pay for killing Tibbet or whatever. And then it's never <laughs> mentioned again. Interesting trivia on From Russia to Love. It's the only Eon Bond film that's been shown on a BBC channel. That's right. I heard that. And there was no ads and everyone was like, well, where are the ads? <laughs> it was shown as part of a BFI season. And to sort of go from the extravagance to scale back for your second film. And yes. all right. Goldfinger's scales back for the large part of the film as yeah, well, like but it it should have been the other way around, really, yeah. shouldn't it? Like it should this should have been the first one, and then they changed their minds and they made Doctor No instead, kind of thing, and they decided to make it a big franchise with big sets and big silly stuff. You know, it feels like it should have been the other way around. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Before we move on from from Russia with Love, lest we forget, there is a PlayStation Two game of From Russia with Love. They brought back Sean Connery, unbelievably, like. And Dan Jack licensed to that game. So someone must have had a conversation with Sean Connery and said, will you come back for that bloody game? I, I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess that you haven't played it. I, I own it and I played some of it. But again, they just anything with a Peggy rating above seven tends to <laughs> be a game that pisses me off rather than help me unwind. Suffice to say, I, it, I, I'm so glad that it exists. I plan on replaying it very soon. Um, it's not one of my favorites because it kind of takes a very serious, very adult, very laid back kind of espionage movie and turns it into Rambo running around shooting people. 
like some of the James Bond movies are very clever. Like Goldeneye is very clever in that, like you're not just going around like Rambo, just killing people left and right. You 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 have to be careful. You have to think like James Bond to play it well. Everything or nothing is the other one that does that really really well. Nightfire from Russia with Love. You're running around like Rambo. You're you know there's health left and right. There's grenade launchers. There's entire levels where you're just running around with a big uh, mini gun shooting people off the speedboat. It's just it's a bit ridiculous, but I do love that it exists and I yeah. love that they brought Sean Connery it, back. It, to do it. it did always seem like the odd Connery film to pick to make your computer game out of. It's like oh, Thunderball's right there, dude. Do- Doctor No would have been. Yeah. All of them would have been better. Oh, well, yeah, I get why they wouldn't do Thunderball. Or, or an original story with Sean Connery set in the 60s. That would have been box office. I don't know what, but you know what? Apparently, they did it because he said it was his favorite one. So they were like, oh, yeah. got to do that one. So I dipped in out of the games. All right, uh, you're number six. Okay, I think we're going to start having very similar uh, lists here now. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yep, that is my number five. Hey! I have a soft spot for this because this was my first cinematic bond. I went on New Year's Eve 1997 to watch this one like a sad loner. I ignored all those hip New Year's Eve parties I was invited to. I went, no, I got a date with Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh, and I fucking loved it. And? Terry Hatcher. And Terry Hatcher. Terry Hatcher. There it is. I was I was building up to the Terry. This might be the only James Bond podcast ever where nobody says a bad word about Terry Hatcher. History has been made. <laughs> she's fine in it. I um, think she's fine in it. I think they even have a bit of chemistry. Sue me. I, I know she did not enjoy it. And he did not enjoy her. <laughs> and um, Well, she only did it because her husband wanted to be married to a Bond girl is her story on it. Yeah. Okay, Terry Hatcher. You you only starred in this like hundred million dollar movie because shut up. What are you talking about? Because nobody wants to be in a Bond film, really. I like this film. It fucking moves along at a brisk pace. The opening credit sequence is amazing. It does a nice job of reintroducing Brosnan's Bond, like you know, with a new look, clean shaven, proper hair, not big boofy mid nineties job. You have this like faintly apologetic sound in your voice. Like, don't apologize. This is a great movie. No, no, I'm not apologizing at all. I love it. I love Tomorrow Never Dies. It's just... if nothing else, you've got Judy Dench and Jeffrey Palmer on screen together. I love as time goes by, and to see yeah. those two on screen, and they have that amazing exchange where he says to her, "You know, sometimes M, I don't think you have the balls for this job," and she replies with, "Yeah, but the advantage of that is I don't have to think with them. I don't have to think with them. It's great. Like, I mean, I, I genuinely every time I watch him, like, what? Wait, people don't like this one. Like, it's a perfect film. Jonathan Price, like, of all the villains, it, like, delicious, delicious. Uh, it, 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 sorry, I'm actually tongue tied. I like this film so much. Like." Making the villain be a media mogul in the mid 90s, like perfect. And then for years afterwards, everyone's like, oh, well, they could have just looked it up on the internet and, and verified that it wasn't actually happening. Guess what? There's fake news on the internet too. <laughs> like, I, I, I think this was actually weirdly prescient in a lot of ways. This film. I think people think that more people were using the internet in 97 than they actually were. Yeah. yeah no, no I, I, I think it's. It absolutely is not as ambitious as Goldmine. It, it's it's just this really super fun victory lap of a movie where they're just kind of like, do you know what? James Bond is awesome. Let's just make a whole movie celebrating how awesome he is. And like every scene, he's doing something cool. And David Arnold is right there to back him up. Yeah. Like the, the Bond team is blaring in every single scene. And oh God, I just, I love it. I, I might it watch David it. Arnold hot off the success of his Shaken and Stewart album. Oh, it, what a beautiful album. Yeah. Have you listened to the whole thing? Yes, yeah, I've got it. It's 
the pulp it's version heavily of, a boy when it came out the pulp version of all time high i only heard that for the first time during the pandemic and i was like that is just a brilliant like it's yeah. so good there's so many good tracks on that and yeah no just yeah, people talk a lot of shit about this. I'm not. I'm not going to call out any of the flaws I have with this film. I love it so much. It's. It was. I. It wasn't my first cinematic Bond, but it was the first one that I sort of taped and watched constantly. I'd say I yeah. watched it every single day in 1999 in the lead up to The World Is Not Enough, and I like this substantially more than The World Is Not Enough to this day. And the, the, there's nothing about it I don't like. Everything about it is great. The scene with Doctor Kaufman. Everybody always talks about that. Great. The scene where he's controlling the car in the back of the thing with the taxi driver. Yeah, I love that bit. Taxi driver. Oh my god! And... Just him sitting in the hotel room, seeing who Carver's going to send for him, just slowly getting smashed on vodka. Now, where have I heard that before? Who, who, who would ever write a book about such a thing? You know, and like th- that scene where you know she she, why'd you marry him? And she's like, oh, you tell me you love me. Oh, he sounds good. Like that's uh, genuine. He, one of my favorite Brosnan moments. Yeah. Like, just he delivers that really, really well. Like, um, I know people like to me, post that thing of like her death and then him pissing himself laughing in the backseat of the car. As I think, but that's fucking Bond. That is fucking Bond. And my friend Parker made an excellent, excellent point about that. He was like, that's what the Pierce Brosnan character is. It's like he uses his career and his kind of existence as a spy and all these fun little things. Like, that's the escape from the awful trauma he's been through. Like that, that's his version of the character. And that when you think about it that way, you're kind of like, it kind of works, you know? Um, I, I like Elliot Carver. I know, again, a lot of people have a problem with him. I like, he was a nice change of pace from Bondville. No, I have absolutely no problem with him at all. Um, I like Great. Stamper. I think Stamper's fun. I love the whole thing with the Bedfordshire at the beginning. Very unpleasant death, Mr. Bond. <laughs> so good. Again, like I, I mentioned Necros earlier on, Stamper is number three in terms yeah. of the, the Red Grand clones. Like he's, <laughs> and, and the guy in Fear Eyes Only is like distant last. Yeah. Yeah, it's just great. The set piece on the motorbike's great. Michelle Yeoh's great in it. I know people have an issue with them two getting it on at the end. But I quite like, there was a podcast I listened to where somebody said, well, no, think of her as like the female James Bond. She's just using him. They've both gone through this thing and now she's using him. Possibly she's slightly underserved by the end where she does become the damsel in distress kind of thing. It's like she's a competent agent up to the point where they don't need her to be anymore. She is, but you know what? She took a fall because David Arnold had to shine. And yeah. that, that final track, I think it's called uh, All in a Day's Work or something like that. There's just this fucking triumphant blast of the Bond theme. And then it segues into Surrender by Katie Lang as as Bond is given mouth to mouth to wail in. And it's so beautiful and so brilliant. And it's... Oh God! It's so you know I I I I absolutely agree that it, it kind of underserves Michelle Yeoh a bit, like and she should be the badass. But I'm still glad that that exists because the music is so good in that scene. I love the bit where she's walking down the wall and she just waves at him, and just the look on his face, like, "What yeah. the fuck is this? Why did I get one of those?" The mobile phone in that movie as well. Like as a kid, I was deeply, deeply obsessed with that. I just thought, yeah, that his mobile phone in that. And Val Kilmer's mobile phone in the sink were the two mobile phones I was obsessed with. I, I, I would probably say that's my favorite gadget in the franchise. The mobile the mobile phone and Tomorrow Never Dies. I just I just thought I and I, I made one out of cardboard when I was a kid and I was oh god. Really, yeah. really love it. And again, everyone's like, Oh well, you know, it dates the movie. No, fuck you. It was prescient. It 
predicted what we could do with smartphones 10 years later. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I'm not a fan of the BMW, but it's also the perfect car for a guy pretending to be a banker. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? It's, you know, I don't want a model of it on my shelf like I do an Aston Martin, but yeah, yeah, yeah. for the context of the film, and, and it's possibly the only Bond car I could ever really afford in my lifetime. Well, the BMW <laughs> Z3 and Goldeneye, you see them like, I feel like I see them every other day. Like that, that they're, I, I, I don't think they're that cheap anymore. And the tax on them is probably pretty high because they're like. The trouble with those is that because I'm a tall, slightly large guy. I'd look like Noddy in it. So you look like your man from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only car I could afford. But yeah, no, I I unashamedly love Tomorrow Never Dies. It's my favorite Brosnan. I think it's the best Brosnan. Yep, uh, I I would say I think Goldeneye is objectively better. But I or any Goldeneye is any... probably a better film, but for pure enjoyment. I even like the stuff people complain about about like, you know, oh, he really shows his hand in front of Elliot Carver at the thing. It's like, yeah, the same way Sean Connery did in Thunderball. Yeah, the same way James Bond does in a That's bunch it. of movies, motherfucker. I love the way he does the, I feel off to the sea, adrift. <laughs> Just and, sort of tail up. The, the other thing people always complain about is, oh, Pierce Brosnan running in with a machine gun. Yeah, great. Pretty cool. Like, And, you know, I, I, it was 1997. It, yeah, it, like, I think a hallmark of the Brosnan era. Strangely, like, you, you would almost assume that would be more of a Dalton thing because he was the 80s Bond, like the 80s action Bond. But like a hallmark of the Brosnan era was he was kind of the commando bond. Like he was the guy that was running in with a machine gun. Well, you think as well, The Rock was the year before and that was Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage running around with machine guns or less Nicolas Cage. But, you know, it was more so in in Goldeneye Tomorrow Never Dies. Like he was a lot of AK-47 action. And like, I think that was what sort of really set the stage for the Goldeneye game. And then all the games that came after. And then I think once he got to the world's not enough, they were like, we need to, you know, step back from this. Like, n- no more machine guns. Notably as well, the last time until Daniel Craig that we get the Walter PPK. Yeah. Because um, he gets the P99, which I thought was really exciting at the time. I completely agree. And what were you going to follow that up with? Um, I think it's a bit of a chunky gun now. I prefer the PPK as I've got older, but I do like the P99. I, I, I agree. I, I, I think... You know, we were talking about things that date films. I, I think the P99 is the only thing that, like, really dates the film. Yeah, it's weird way. seeing Daniel Craig with it in Casino Royale. Yeah, it, it just, it looks like something that just weird American Area 51 kind of Trump voters would have. It doesn't feel like something James Bond should have. And it doesn't it, feel like it would fit in a tuxedo either. Yeah, it doesn't feel like an elegant gun, does it? It's... Whereas the PPK looks like a spy's gun, like it looks like this tiny little thing that will fit into the backs of suitcases, and you could fit it into a secret compartment. You, you know the way, like you, you're not going to fit a P99 into like the fold under a, you know. Tomorrow Never Dies as well was like peak Bond, like merchandise as well. You had the weird toys where it looked a bit more like Bob Monkhouse than Pierce Brosnan. The um figures that didn't move i can't remember the company that made them now they did him they did waylin and they did him in a white tuxedo as well you had the james bond spy files which everybody started to collect and gave up on quite it was just yeah a really exciting time and it was like peak well it's 97 so new labor brit pop bond was cool britain was cool brosnan looked probably looked his best in this film i'd say yeah he did i i do think we can get back into this but like you know i i was a 90s kid like i was seven when this movie came out and james bond was everywhere and they did such a great job at you know attracting me and my generation into bond and i 
I didn't really do that with the Craig era. Like, I feel like with the Craig era, they were trying to bring back people who grew up with Bond and moved away from it. Whereas I think now, more than ever, they need to bring back the young audience. And what we can Yeah, they, they need to do a tonal shift, not quite to the extravagance of the Brosnan later ones, but and, sort and, of that golden eye tomorrow never dies period. And it's a golden opportunity. There's no reason why they can't. Like, no. they, they, it's the perfect... It's the only way you can do it. You can't have somebody come in and do what Daniel Craig did now. There's, no. Bond's never done that anyway. The, the exception possibly of George Lazenby... Yeah, the, the guy has never done what the guy he's following did before. Yeah, I love the whole White Knight stuff at the beginning. White Knight to Black Rook. <laughs> Ask the general where he'd like it, missiles. He's an admiral. Come on, let's not knock right him down. Yeah, sorry. And 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 Robinson, your man Robinson. Uh, I I give him a lot of shit sometimes. Colin Salmon. He's good in these movies. He's yeah. really really good. Like I I I think they got him because Tanner wasn't available. Your yeah, Michael, uh, Michael Kitchen wasn't available. Which I always thought Michael Kitchen would have been a good cue when Desmond Llewellyn hung up. And and they do bring Michael Kitchen back, but you know, Colin Salmon is kind of the MVP of the Brosnan era, like yeah. other than Judy Dench and Brosnan himself. Well, yeah, he was the guy Brosnan said should take over as Bond. Uh, no. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> no, I, no I, bro- and, and suffice to say, no problem with a black Bond, but not Colin Salmon. There are actors that are great in supporting roles that should never yeah. be in lead roles. And he's nothing a, against Colin and Salmon. I love Colin, Colin Salmon and everything I've seen him in, but he's a TV actor. Yeah. What was your number five? Number five with a bullet is The Spy Who Loved Me. I'm Roger Moore, and make sure you see me in The Spy Who Loved Me. My number four is Casino Royale. Ooh. My number four is Goldfinger. So, yeah, I had Goldfinger earlier. So, yeah, Goldfinger, it's, it's oh, generally well, hailed you, as. You had yours deep down the list, did you? Uh, no, Goldfinger was below Living Daylights. It was my number eight. Number eight. Okay, not too bad. There's not really a lot left to say about Goldfinger that hasn't been said before. It's a really good film, but it's, yeah, it's it's my second favorite Connery. Yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of getting into desert island territory here. It's like, if gun to my head, you know, you had to live in a desert island. You never watch a James Bond movie again. You know, it, there's just so much in it that's iconic and amazing and incredible. And that the, it's the best pre-title sequence of the entire series for me. Yeah, uh, it's just so so cool, and Connery is so so cool in it. It's when they realized what they could do with pre title sequences because I think yeah. they sort of threw it away a bit with From Russia with Love with the fake, oh, we killed Bond. No, we didn't. Yeah, and like, oh god, and you know, and and the Gert Frobe is really really good, Honor Blackman, the, the DB5, Desmond Llewellyn, like everything is great. And and then you know, everyone gives out about how oh, well Bond doesn't really do anything in the third act. Yeah, do you know what he does? He's played by Sean Connery and he's amazing. And yeah. he's just so cool and iconic and charismatic in every scene. You just believe everything that would happen. You're just like, yep, yeah, that guy would save the world. Great. Perfect. Because it's Goldfinger yeah. in the book where he works for Goldfinger, doesn't he? Or, you know, pretends yeah. to work for Goldfinger. I And I just actually finished uh, listening to the audiobook of Goldfinger um, just yesterday. And Again, it's a film that's better than the book. Like they, yeah. they make changes that work. Like in the book, Goldfinger just wants to steal all the gold. And it does work in the book. Like he's just so crazy that you're kind of like, yeah, well, you know, fair enough. But then there's this all this boring stuff where he kidnaps Bond and forces him to do admin work for him. And you're like, what? Like, you know, but all the all the stuff that's good in the book is good in the film. The golf game is good. The Fort Knox stuff. They don't even go into Fort Knox in the book. All that is added into the film. And the the laser scene is it's a buzzsaw in the book. There's loads of stuff like that. Like it is a good book, but it, yeah, no, the film is better. And 
it's no, I think it's really, really, really good. For as much as they've used Majesties as the blueprint for the Daniel Craig era, they need to go back and just Goldfinger needs to be blueprint for the next year. There's a couple of films, classic Bond, Goldfinger is one that pops into your head, whether you, you know, with a bit more thought would keep it in there or not. But my only thing with Goldfinger is it's one that I don't watch as much as I possibly should do. If I'm picking a Connery, I tend to pick a Thunderball or Dr. No. And I understand that. Like, I actually do. And that there is a version of the future where Dr. No might actually open yeah. Goldfinger for me. But well, yeah, because that's the other thing. Is like I say, a couple of years down the line, do another rewatch and a re-ranking. It possibly changed completely. It's all about mood and what you're after at the time. Okay, then my number three is License to Kill. My number three is also License to Kill. If I was going purely on favourite and most watched, this would be number one. It's the Bond film that made me fall back in love with the Bond films. I think it's a really nice ending to the classic era of Bond as well. Every uh, every time I'm not in a James Bond mood, I will just sort of get this inkling to watch the trailer for License to Kill. And the trailer for License to Kill, if you've never seen it, go on www.youtube.com right now, type in License to Kill trailer. It is such a... Like, when, when you compare it to, like, the Batman... 89 trailer the indiana jones tra- all the films that made much more money that summer license to kill had the best trailer of them all yeah it's so good it just lays out exactly what the film's about and um that that voice over your personal vendetta is compromising her majesty's government it's just wall to wall brilliance and that truck doing the wheelie and the in the in the kind of third act was one of the most iconic James Bond scenes for me as a kid. I just thought it was so yeah. cool. I love this film. I really, really love it. And people talked shit about it for years. And I think finally, finally, people are starting to realize that it's actually brilliant. Just quickly on the trailer, did you ever see the fan edit trailer that somebody did with in the style of Mission Impossible Fallout? No. Uh, License to Kill trailer. It's superb. Google is the uh, License to Kill Mission Impossible trailer. It's really well done. I, yeah, I mean, we did an episode on this when we were doing our movie fights trilogy where. It was me, John Tucker, and Tom Stewart, and each of us picked a film we love, and I picked this one. And John Tucker basically undermined it by Bond takes out a bad guy by gossiping. Which, <laughs> well, yeah, like which I, once he said that, and I, I love the idea of it just going down to a base level of Bond just in an office, being like, "You, you heard about Sanchez?" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, it, it comes back to yeah, like it's silly, like it is silly, like, and I've heard people lay like to try and discredit the film it's like oh well it doesn't make any sense that he just you know undermines sanchez and then makes him you know crumble his whole criminal empire as a result and you're like yeah that's what's so great about it and like it's, see that never bothered me because sanchez is such a guy everything about sanchez is you know loyalty means more to me than money. Me money yeah and just the idea of somebody chipping away at that even if he doesn't buy it it's going to put that niggling thing of doubt and he's that kind of character and it never bothered me all right yeah you can and and look it is it is the pretentious answer but like michael g wilson was drawing from the uh kurosawa movie it's all about the hero like chipping away at the villain's self-confidence and you know defeating him that way and i just think that's so cool man i i really would love to see i would love to have seen because i think it's probably too late now michael g wilson actually get down and write another Bond movie because yeah. I think his the ones he actually wrote himself were really really interesting I think this is you know patient zero of that like it, it's just such a cool movie and like another thing people give out about the ninjas and like oh the guy's head explodes and 
it's just so silly. I'm like, yeah, read a book by Ian Fleming. <laughs> like they're, they're silly. James Bond is silly. Like get over it. Like it's. I saw an interview thing with Timothy Dalton. I think it was an older interview where he was talking about people say about there's no humor in it. He's like, it's a bit where a guy's head explodes. And then they ask him what to do with the money. He tells him to launder it. It's like, That's funny. <laughs> there, there's a bit where they find, uh, not Killiford, the guy, the guy who stole the, the stingers. And he's, he's literally impaled by the uh four. oh heller heller and and timothy dalton's like oh it looks like he came to a dead end like <laughs> timothy dalton was funny switch the bloody machine off <laughs> switch the bloody machine off the best line of the film is watch the birdie you yeah i can't take a photo without saying that i like that and i like michael g wilson's if they hurry they both might nail the bastard don't you want to know why i love that God, it's so good. I, I actually might watch that after. <laughs> I keep saying that now, but we're, we're into that period of films now where I'm just like, oh, they're so Like good. I say, watching that in the cinema last year, I made a point. It was like, I won't be able to go and watch all 25. Yeah. I would have loved to see, I would have quite liked to see Goldeneye just because then I would have seen all the Brosnans on the big screen as well. Mm. But those two were definite, much to my wife's pleasure. Cause she was like, really, you're going to drag me to this? <laughs> and we sat down to watch her. She was like, oh, I've fucking seen this one. Yeah, do you know what? I, I, meant that the ones i wanted to see were probably the next three uh on a majesty's secret service spy love me and license to kill they were the ones that i was like these are never going to be screened again because they don't star sean connery daniel craig or pierce brosnan and i was like i just really but but then i heard that apparently the anniversary screenings they were doing here they were just kind of throwing them out into these like rubbish little tiny screens in cinemas that weren't they weren't the biggest ones but they were still bigger than my telly um majesties i wanted to see but we were doing some of that weekend so i couldn't go i feel like that that almost might be one that they screen again though yeah majesties occasionally get some at like the bfi as well in london how good is timothy dalton's gun barrel i would maintain he's the coolest gun barrel walk Specifically in this film with the Michael Kamen score, which I know you Michael Kamen score, I absolutely the first James Bond score I bought. And and I do I understand what people say when they say, well, you know, like there are bits of it that are cool, but there are bits of it that just don't really and it's the same problem I have with Eric Serra. It's like there are bits of it that people like, and then there are just other bits where it's kind of ill advised and all that. Like that that's all this, fine. They they got the guy who did Lethal Weapon and Die Hard for a reason. His um electric when Dalton's hanging from the helicopter when they're going after Sanchez at the beginning, his version of the James Bond theme in that with the electric guitar and just that sort of Spanish sort of twang to it as well. Goosebumps. I just... Oh, God. It's that and the Superman theme. If I hear them in the right context, just like, oh. It's so good and so well done. And Christopher Nolan, are you watching, baby? Yeah. Like, that was The Dark Knight Rises. If anyone hasn't seen License to Kill, Christopher Nolan took that and put it in The Dark Knight Rises. And you know what? That's actually Timothy Dalton doing most of that stunt. Yep. Which every time I watch it, I'm like, oh god! Like it just makes it. Well, yeah, because I think the thing with Timothy Dalton was they were like they had to tell him he couldn't do things. And and wasn't it a thing that he was doing it because Albert Broccoli wasn't there that day or something yeah. like that, so he could get away with it? Like, yeah, because I think when Albert Broccoli found out, he was fucking livid. So badass! Like really, really good. I, I love the meme that goes around about this film as well where it's just a picture of timothy dalton's james bond it's just like uh james bond kills you and then throws a party in your house <laughs> buy yourself um, some decent clothes i love sanchez's house with the infinity yeah, pool and yeah all that carrie Lowell is fucking great in this film she is great and and i've heard so many podcasts over the years where people are like, oh who's your favorite bond girl and a lot of people say carrie Lowell. yeah and do you know what <laughs> 
I, I I don't know if I'm quite there, but I'm you know you know like Richard Gere was married to her for a long time. Yeah. And um, no, she she's really good in this. Like, and she didn't. I I hate to say she didn't need to be because everyone should be good in a film they're casting. But like she 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 was probably cast for a different reason, you know. And and yeah. she she's spot on. Like great performance, great chemistry with Dalton. And and like she is underserved a little bit in some bits. I do think the whole jealousy thing is probably a bit overplayed a bit. Like if I could change anything in the movie, she gets really jealous of Lupe and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh. yeah. Um, like and that little CIA. bit from Lupe is possibly the one really clunky bit for me. I, I love James so much. so much. Yeah, it feels like the, a Roger Moore relic again, doesn't it? Like it possibly fits her character a bit. That you know she would fall in love with this savior figure quite quickly. I love Desmond Llewellyn in this. I love the thing when he throws the broom away after he's done the thing. Like, it's just I remember watching. It must have been TVAM at the time. Him being interviewed on that, and that was the clip they showed. And even he said he was like that was one of his favorite things he's ever done. He's like because he's always been bollocking Bond about not looking after his stuff, and then he just tosses it into a hedge. The Q in the Dalton movies is such a different speed. Like he, yeah. he was just so much more jovial and sort of good-natured and happy it's my favorite bond q relationship yeah it's it's different and i'm glad it's different like it's kind of worked i like that you know he's the one who sent out i think you know money penny's underserved in this one i think caroline bliss gets a bit of a hard rap she didn't have the best material to work with to be honest no and she was following lois maxwell who i love lois maxwell but she was in the role far too long much like roger, roger moore was uh, money yeah. penny's kind of somebody you should change out with each actor Although with yeah. in the case of Roger Moore, she was still age appropriate for him. Yeah, no, I, I I'd agree with that. I I I don't think they really put their best foot forward in terms of introducing a new money penny. They just sort of said, "Well, here she is again." It's like yeah, but they sort of you know with you know, you come over and listen to my Barry Manilow record on that. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, Dalton in Living Daylights pats her on the ass. <laughs> again, it it's that Albert Broccoli thing of like. I, a lot of these guys were just day players. Like they, they weren't like casting this iconic role. They were just like, oh, well, who's around Pinewood that we can get? You know? Like, yeah. And I feel like that's who Caroline Bliss was. To you know, and I all respect to her, but I, I feel like that's how she was probably cast. Was just. I mean, we, we didn't talk about it with the Brosnan ones, but how great Samantha Bond is. Again, they kind Samantha of Samantha Bond. I think is actually probably my favorite Money Penny. Yeah, she's so good. Like she's really, really good in those. But I think they actually, you know, and uh, we haven't really gotten to this yet. But like for me, I'm not a royalist. There's only one queen in my life, and that's Queen Barbara Broccoli. People do not give her enough credit for how much she actually brought to the franchise. And like one of the big things I think she did was like casting was like paramount to you know like debbie mcwilliams was still involved and all that kind of stuff but like i i think they put so much more of a kind of cinematic stamp on the brosnan era and the craig era than they ever did in the, the earlier ones where abba broccoli was like you know how, how fast can we pump these out you know the kind of way and I, I think samantha bond was a big part of that like you know we need to actually make a statement with this character and they really really did and i, I loved that about those movies yeah no her exchange with brosnan in golden eyes it's great. License to Kill, like you say, it's a lot of shit. I think it's had a lot of reappraisal in the light of the Daniel Craig era. Again, that's one great thing that's come out of the Daniel Craig era is people have gone back to the Dalton ones and been like, shit, actually, no. Dalton was great. I love the end. It ends perfectly for me. If that was the last ever Bond film we had, I like it. I don't even mind the winking fish. I've heard people say this. I, I, I don't know. I don't. I never got that vibe from it. Like that, you know, that he's now going to leave the service and all that. Yeah, I don't know. 
yeah, it felt like it could end again. Like I said with Octopussy, I think I could see Dalton and Pam going off and like you know setting up a little mm. smuggling business. Or <laughs> yeah, and and like you know, and the whole Felix being in hospital, going, "Oh, James, it's great to hear from you. My wife just died." And then he's like winking at the nurse. And like, have you seen South Park: Bigger, Longer, and Cut? Yeah, I the love- George Clooney cameo in that where um, they accidentally replace Kenny's heart with a baked potato he's got. <laughs> then Kenny's heart explodes, and then George Clooney's doctor goes, Damn it! It never gets any easier! <laughs> that's very much Phoenix Lighter's thing over his wife's death. Yeah, that, that, that that's the only kind of bad thing I could say with him. I do like, though, Q looking at Bond and... Uh... Pam Bouvier down below and he's got both drinks in his hand and he just drinks both <laughs> and walks away. Brilliant. Uh, Wayne Newton's great at it as well. Bless your heart. How great is Robert Davi as well? As like They talk about the villain being the mirror of Bond. Something about Robert Davi, he's a nasty shit but you kind of like it. Yeah, I do like Robert Davi. I heard somewhere recently that they were, they were trying to get somebody else and I heard it was someone big and I can't remember who it was, but Robert Davi was like the kind of well, here's who we could afford, okay, you know? I, I, I just think Benicio Del Toro was so good in this. Yeah. Like, you know, and, you know, he has no reason to be, but he just is because he's just... And, of course, he went on to have this amazing career. Like, every scene he's in, he just looks like a vampire. Like, he just looks incredible. Like, hissing at all these... Just amazing. Really, really yeah. Cool. It's, yeah, Robert Davi is... Benicio Del Toro, I mean, when you watch Unusual Suspects, you're like, what can a do from License to Kill? <laughs> but, yeah, no, he's great, and he's... Gave it a nice honeymoon. Like, you know, that was him. Like, that wasn't John Glenn saying, Oh, Benicio, I think you should do it this way. That was Benicio. Just the implication of that line. It's like, I don't need to know anything else. I know everything. Anthony Stark is great as Truman Lodge. Well done, France. I love his little smirk when Timothy Dalton says, You know, oh, that shouldn't be too hard. And he just sort of looks at him and just has that little grin on his face. Kind of like, you know, he's like, I kind of fancy this guy. <laughs> Big Ed from Twin Peaks playing yeah. Philipper. Really, really like him as well. You want it. There's you keep mil. it. There's two mil in that suitcase. I love how he picks it up and just sort of feels the weight of it. And the guy playing Sharky, like, yeah. is there a weak link in this cast? No. There's no. Not. No, what not a at all. of money. <laughs> Sorry, last thing I want to say about License to Kill. Imagine you're sitting in the cinema. You're, I don't know. 12 years old, right? A couple of years ago, you've seen Roger Moore dressed up as a literal clown in Octopussy. <laughs> and you're sitting there in the cinema and Timothy Dalton is looking, he's got his hands on a woman's throat and he says, make a sound. You're dead. Like, what a tonal shift for a franchise to make in just a couple of years. That was that's always one of the biggest things that stands out to me is just how unbelievably dark he is in this compared yeah. to like just a couple of years ago with Roger Moore like I would have liked to have seen a third I think a third Dalton one would have got the perfect balance between Living Daylights and this one I think that would have cemented Dalton as I, you know I, instead of a also ran kind of footnote I, I absolutely would have loved to have seen a third Dalton and I would have loved to have seen a Dalton with Goldeneye like I yeah. would have loved, and there was a version of the script that they wrote with him in mind I know that but uh I also think that if they had made a Bond movie in 1991 the same way they were making Bond movies up until that point, I think it would have just petered out. Yeah, no, I think they realised by that point, because like, say, John Glenn was going to have been gone that one. I think Dalton and Glenn clashed on this one quite a bit. You mentioned that to me before, yeah. 
um just from things i've read and i could cut you know i could kind of see it, it was a big tonal shift i know it's john glenn's favorite film of the ones he did and i, I think it's, it's the one he's most proud of it's the greatest what if kind of movie isn't it have you have this you read, superman's uh, lived have you read the treatments and the scripts and all that stuff that i've not read the scripts i've read the lost bond book that came out a couple of years ago that yeah. goes into details on it and there was a podcast that read through one of the scripts yes that had him like hang gliding into the thing at the beginning which i imagine is what eventually evolved into the damn jump and the, the lady that turned into a cyborg at the end yeah yeah which again the draft they read was a first draft i imagine that would have been fine-tuned it, it does feel like they were leaning in a different direction they, they were kind of going well sci-fi is popular so let's lean into that Lawnmower man's on its way. <laughs> like that, they were leaning away from the Miami Vice of it all. And I know there was another draft or a treatment or something written by someone or other who tried to lean into the drugs again, and they said, "No, we're not doing that." Yeah, no, you, they they'd done that by that point. Yeah, um, I'm I, I'm so glad License to Kill exists, though I have to say, and I love Miami Vice and I love '80s action and all that stuff, and I'm so glad that they they tried to harness that into James Bond. And it's yeah. so good. And I, you know, it was the perfect time, the perfect actor, and the perfect composer. I just love License to Kill. Fucking love it. I get why some people don't love it. You know, yeah. traditional Bond fans and that, but fuck them. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Right, then my number two was The Spy Who Loved Me. And uh, my number five was The Spy Who Loved Me. For me, this is, if you ask me to think, like, you know, picture the perfect Bond cocktail, all that stuff, it's this. Yeah. Or it doesn't have the Q lab scene. Which surprisingly, rewatching these, there's, he brings in the Lotus actually out in the field, doesn't he? Yeah, surprisingly, no. not that many films that have a Q lab scene. Yeah, no, no. It's, in, it's... in the grand scheme of it, when you think about it, it, um, it was the first one post Saltzman leaving, and it was the first time that we had, or it was a slightly shorter fallow period, but there wasn't a Bond after Man with the Golden Gun. It was seventy three, and this was seventy seven, so it was the longest gap at the time. So a huge risk. No, Golden Gun was seventy. Five, no, seventy-four, no, seventy-three or seventy-four. Seventy-three was seventy-three was living let die. So yeah, I think it was seventy-four. Yeah, yeah. So it was three years later, yeah. which was a big gap at the time. Yeah, I think this is peak Roger. Yeah, no, absolutely, no. Uh, Jaws is creepy as fuck in this film. The whole stuff in the pyramids, deactivating the bomb. Is just yeah, amazing. it's just the whole thing with the uh, submarines. The big fight in the end in the you know, Stromberg's oil rig thing that swallows submarines. And Which is essentially you only live twice again. But what what sets this apart from so many of the Roger Moore movies, which are kind of throwaway, like for better and for worse, like there's that scene with Anya where she's like, she basically finds out that he's the guy who killed the spy who loved me, and you know he has that line where he's like, you know, when you're when someone's chasing after you on skis at a hundred miles per hour. You don't take the time to remember a face or whatever. And it's just a perfect line. And he delivers it so well. And it's just, it, it is, it does feel, it's not from Fleming, but it feels like something that could yeah. be. And he delivers it so, and it just gives a bit of depth to the movie. Like, and the rest of the movie, then she's kind of at odds with him. And then he eventually wins her over. But you kind of believe when he wins her over. It doesn't feel contrived like it does in a lot of the other ones. Just really, really love it. And there's a lovely reference to Tracy that doesn't feel kind of thrown in. It feels like it's actually kind of, you know, it it, it, it feels like it's relevant, you know, that kind of way. Um, lots, of, lo- lots of great stuff. Yeah. The, the Alan Partridge scene is a big part of why I love Spy Love Me so much. You know the one? Yeah. 
like he just really sells the movie so well and i think that was kind of one one of the things that really opened my eyes to how good this really is like that the pre-titles is great the the plot is great like the stromberg like he is kind of a throwaway villain but sometimes you need a throwaway villain i kind of said yeah. that earlier on like, you you've got jaws and you've got caroline monroe as even sandor is pretty cool like that, yeah once he, like and he, you know he's kind of an odd job knockoff but that's a good that's a good fight that he has with him where's feckish and hits him with the he karate chops the tie and yeah it's a good stuff it was the film that finally let roger moore be roger moore as well not quite to the extent that roger moore went but 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 not in it yeah like exactly like not in an egregious way where it was like the detriment of the rest of the film like it was like just the right amount of Roger Moore. That and it's the only film I think that got that balance exactly right. Yeah. You have you have a little bit of Fear Eyes only Roger Moore, but then you also have a good bit of just funny Uncle Roger Moore in there as well. You yeah. Know? Yeah. The, the whole thing of the lotus coming out of the sea and winding the window down and dropping a fish. So that oh, makes no fucking sense, but it's wonderful. And that whole lotus scene is magnificent. Like, and not even the bit, not even like even before it goes underwater, that whole bit is great. Where he's yeah. like, all those feathers and he still can't fly. Like, that's <laughs> a great line and just brilliant. Like, yeah, I mean, it's one of the ones I, like say, pretty much definitive gold standard in my mind, James Bond. Again, it's not one that I go back to possibly as much as some others. It, it, Mainly because my first picks are usually Tomorrow Never Dies, License to Kill or Living Daylights. And then if I'm not in the mood for any of those, I start working down the other ones. I, I, I almost feel guilty to say that at one stage, Spy Love Me was number three for me. And it, it has slipped a bit over the years just because I think I just realized how much I love License to Kill. Yeah. And then watching Goldfinger recently, I was like, you know what? The laser coming up Bond's, you know, coming up towards his groin. He goes, do you expect me to talk? It's like, do I really want to be on a desert island and not have that? So it, it slipped for that reason. And I, I think there are scenes in The Spy Love Me where I'm just like, mm, this isn't iconic. Like the bit where he meets his friend from college or whatever. And he's like, well, the man you're looking for is Fakesh or whatever. And then he has that line about delving into Egypt's treasures or whatever. Like, well, we, we don't need this. But like there are so many other parts of it that I just love so much. Um, and I think, again, going back to just chemistry, which is so important to me, his chemistry with Barbara Back is great. Like really, really good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like I say, with these rankings, things will move around with each rewatch anyway. Like I say, I was surprised that so many of the more films were as high up as I had them this time around compared to previous ones I've done where they've generally been middle to bottom. All right, and what's your number two? Yes. <laughs> Casino Royale. Is that also your number? No, I had Casino Royale at number four. I love Casino Royale. It only falls slightly lower down for me in that it's possibly the most un-James Bond film of the James Bond films for me. You hear people say that. It's not something that's ever really occurred to me. I think there's enough James Bond in it that like, where's... Yeah, I think because it just throws away all the cocktail pretty much. But I love it for what it is. And it was, again, the shot in the arm that the thing needed after the excess of Die Another Day. It was one of those things that all the cards were stacked against it. Everyone was convinced it was going to be terrible. And that picture came out of Daniel Craig at the uh, African embassy or whatever the thing where he's pointing the water and he's wearing the Hawaiian shirt and he's got the blood in his face and all that. And I just thought, this is going to be good. And then I, I read the original novel and I, the Empire magazine came out hyping the movie up and it was like the, the cover was the gun barrel and he was in the center of it. And th th there was all these interviews with Mark, Martin Campbell talking about how good he was in it. I was like, 
Now, something's telling me now this is going to be really, really, really good. Like, yeah, because the backlash it. against his casting. Oh, yeah, like totally. Like, And I went to see it, and to this day, there are two films for me where whenever people say, oh, well, the movie's never going to live up to your expect expectations because you built it up too much in your mind. Batman Begins and Casino Royale are... I, I built both of those films up in my mind so much that they could never live up to my expectations and then they did and they surpassed yeah. my expectations. So to this day, whenever people say that, oh, never live, never live up to your expectations, I always point out those two films because they did and they still, they still to this day, I still love them both so much and they yeah. did everything they set out to do and yeah, no, I, it's a perfect film. It's a masterpiece. I love it so much. The only thing that keeps it lower down for me is just as a Bond film, it's missing some of the key elements that I look for in a Bond film. And I just love License to Kill, so that had to bump higher up for me. <laughs> I mean, I love that black and white opening, that whole exchange. We were just getting to know each other. I know where you keep your gun. How do you die? Not well. I love that. I love the use of the gun barrel in it. I love the Chris Cornell song. And I almost wish, like, the gun barrel is done so well in this. Like, I almost... That could have been Daniel Craig's thing. It's just that the gun barrel is like incorporated into the pre-titles that way. You know the way? As a, as opposed to just awkwardly putting it at the end or like, you know the way? Yeah, I think I think it worked for this one. I think it should have been back to the beginning after that. I think if they'd done that, it would have been a little bit like waiting for the M. Night Shyamalan twist. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Only thing I don't like about Casino Royale is the bit where the something about the plane and there, there's a he's chasing the guy in Miami and there's a plane that's taken off or something like that. Yeah. It just feels like an action scene too many. It's like, no, let's just get to Montenegro and do the poker game. Although I do like the look on his face when the guy thinks he's gotten away with it and then realizes he's yes. got the bomb on him. Great. And just that little look on Daniel Craig's face. Like, yeah, fuck you. Real, real Martin Campbell stuff there. Like yeah. well-directed, well kind of paced. It looks good as well. It was the benchmark I used for testing my Blu-ray players to make sure the telly was set up right. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous looking film. The, the reason my youngest child is called Daniel is because he came out looking like Daniel Craig running through a drywall. Love it. <laughs> he just had that screwed up fuck you face. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I pity those poor fuckers working on that building site, blown up by these two dickheads running around. But and M's great in that as well. I love Judy Dench. Yeah, and like she, she... And I love that she's playing a different M. Yeah, and like she was better in the Craig films than she ever was in the... the like, I mean... Not that she wasn't good in the Brosnan film, but she, she kind of had just a more substantial role in... Yeah, I mean, with the exception of The World Is Not Enough, where she had the Electric King stuff to play, they yeah. didn't really give her a lot to do in the Brosnan ones. And her stuff with Jeffrey Palmer in Tomorrow Never Dies is great. But in the, I mean, I love her delivery of, you know, Christ, I missed the Cold War. I, I love her disappointment that Bond didn't defect or kill himself. <laughs> it was too, too early to promote you. That whole exchange is great, you know. Great dialogue. We we watched them all over the pandemic and the dialogue that just the jump up in the quality of the dialogue between Die Another Day and Casino Royale is just gargantuan. Like it's you're just watching a totally different and 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 I'm including the world is not enough in that as well. It's just incredible. It's so good. Like again, it's one that you kind of need to make an appointment to watch. That's yeah. that's all I'd say. Like I I've been watching a bunch of them lately. I haven't watched any of the Craig films, and I I haven't watched this one because I I almost feel like once you watch this one. It ruins the other ones because it's so good that you kind of can't go back and watch the other ones then afterwards. You know, like, but no, no, it's such a lovely film. And it just came out at exactly the right time. I was exactly the right age for it. I, I think it was 15 or 16 when it came out. And it was just a perfect film for that. And it just reignited everything James Bond for me. I went and read all the books afterwards. 
I was just, I went back and bought all the DVDs and it, all that stuff. It just, I, I feel like Casino Royale is like the, one of the linchpins of my whole fandom. Like it, it, if it had just been Die Another Day and then they got someone else to do more of that sort of stuff, I probably would have trailed off. But because yeah. of Casino Royale, I'm, I'm still here today. <laughs> I, I love that they give him the Ursula Andros moment as well. Yeah, absolutely. And he looks him cool. popping out the sea this time. I, I, I do think they should lean away from the whole muscular thing next time. Yeah, Timothy Dalton always said that he saw Bond as a guy who was fit but didn't do anything to keep fit kind of thing. Mm. And that was that's the body type. I think Craig, I think it was about right in Casino Royale. He got bigger as the films went on. Did he? Or possibly I, more ripped. I think he got slimmer in Quantum of Solace. I think he was like a bit trim in that one. Yeah, it possibly it's not as defined muscle. Whereas now, you know, you've got to have the defined abs and everything else, and not body shaming him at all. He looked fucking great in all of them. Yeah, no, I mean, it, you know, it it, but... it 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 is kind of a, a thing though with the whole. I feel like the male physique peaked in the nineties for me. <laughs> <laughs> you look at Dalton with his shirt off and Brosnan with his shirt off. And you're like, that was like that was the gold standard. Maybe not those two, but you know, Dalton license to kill Nicholas Cage in The Rock. Val Kilmer in Batman Forever, uh, Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, like that's like the ultimate male physique for me. It's like it's a, an achievable thing that you can actually do by going to the gym and eating healthy. Yeah, that's that's my dream thing. I don't want to be, you know, a Chris yeah. Hemsworth ripped. Yeah, like once you get into Chris Hemsworth and Henry Cavill, that's just unhealthy. It's steroids and it's eating seven chickens a day and it's just it, nonsense. It's not something that actually exists in the real world, you know. And I think Daniel Craig and Casino Royale is kind of that a bit. You know, it was great at the time, but it's like let's let's move away from that a bit. I think the shot in the arm, the franchise, the, the franchise has always been really good at knowing when it needs to give itself a kick in the ass. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like again, sometimes within the tenure of an actor, Roger Moore certainly got a moment to give the kick in the ass, or he slipped back into old habits. But that that it's a real case of like be careful what you wish for, because everyone's like, oh, I wish they'd sell it to whatever Apple or Amazon or whatever. It's like. No, Amazon would never have the foresight to say, well, do you know what? I think we went too far with Moonraker. Let's make a more... D I think we went too far with that movie that made us more money than we've ever made before. Let's just scale it back and do a more down-to-earth movie that's truer yeah, to Fleming. I, I think it should stay with the Broccoli's, Michael G. Wilson family. 100% should stay with them. They are... They, the, and if they, they don't the want to last... make any more films, they, they've earned it. <laughs> yeah, like, they are the last bastions of, like, the old school way of doing things where it's just like, you know, that the, they actually do have a sense of, you know, that the, 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 the they owe something to the fans yeah. of the franchise. Like, you'll never get that with Amazon or, you know, Disney or any of these people that own all these other things. Like they well, yeah, that's it. I don't want an MCU-style James Bond universe where Felix Leiter gets his own thing. It works in the comics that they've done with um, Dynamite and that. That's great, giving them yeah. the, like Felix Leiter's own story in that. But I don't actually, want it in a film. Actually, doesn't work that well in the comics. The comics, are, the comics. Are it, it was it was fine as a one shot, but again, I don't need a series of of um, Felix Leiter comics. Do it like a six part mini series. Yeah, cool, fine. I want quality Bond movies. And if they, like say, yeah. everybody's kind of like, you know, well, what are they doing? They're just dragging their feet. Like, if they're not ready to move on from Daniel Craig, yeah. Michael G. Wilson's possibly getting to the point now as well where he's kind of like, I just want to retire. And Barbara Broccoli wants to do other stuff. And they're yeah. fine too. Like, it's just like, these are people. They're not accountants. <laughs> they're people. Yeah. You know, I, I completely respect anything they want to do and God bless them for it. And they deserve it. And, you know, if they want to just hold on to this forever and do a movie every five or six years, then 
you know, it's a shame for us as fans, but like it's it's their prerogative. I'd much but prefer... I've got all that other stuff that I can go back and enjoy. Exactly, there is so much stuff to go back to. Where let's let's not forget how everybody wanted Star Wars taken away from George Lucas, and then when they did, everybody was going, "George Lucas would be devastated by what they've done to it." It's like, motherfuckers, this is what you wanted. Like all these other franchises, like Batman and Superman, and all that. It's it's almost like with all of those, you're kind of like they've never quite reached the pinnacle of what I want them to get to. Whereas with James Bond, like we've 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 had everything. Like we've had this like treasure of stuff that you know if if they decide now that, that they've had enough then that's fair enough like i still yeah. have 25 movies to look back on but yeah no it's insane all right then i suppose i mean i think i know what both our number ones are because it's the only film we've not mentioned but yeah so my number one is on a majesty's secret service my number one is also on a majesty's secret service this film's perfection yeah it looks amazing from the, the beach fight the way peter hunt shoots it the shots of the helicopters heading to Piers Gloria. Not even the beach, but like Bond heading to the beach. But again, just the way the fight shot with the anchor, the yeah. like hook thing in the foreground and then fighting in the background is beautifully framed. Um, but yeah, no, him driving to the thing. Yeah, you were talking earlier on, like the Living Daylights being the best intro to a new Bond and all that. Like, I, yeah, I still like a scene around, but even just George Lazenby driving to the beach yeah. and it's like the shot behind his head and then the shot of him smoking a cigarette and then just all really, really, really good. And and he plays that new version of the Bond theme where it's kind of like a keyboard version or something, yeah. I think. Really, really good. And everyone slags George Lazenby. No, he's great. He's great. I think he's great because Peter Hunt made him great. Yes. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's... But, uh... No, with I, with a different director, it could have been a very different story. I mean, it's unfortunately he's dubbed by George Baker for a good chunk of the film, which is really that that is unfortunate. Yeah, I don't even hate the "this never happened to the other fella" line. No, it doesn't bother me. I've got a head canon of how it fits in in continuity, in that he's not referring to Sean Connery; he's referring to like another bloke he saw Tracy with. Ah. That's that's my head canon oh. for, it, and that's how it works for me. And it's. People fucking overthink shit like that. Yeah. Just accept it as what it is, and it's just great. It does great spy stuff in it. And on the topic of Tracy, Diana Rigg is just a mighty treasure in this film. She's yeah. so so good, and they they cast her because they had an untried star in the yeah. lead role. And if Connery, that this is like the crucial kind of beauty of On a Majesty's Secret Service is if Connery had played James Bond in this, it it would have been just another like italian beauty queen it wouldn't have been diana Reed. it would have been dubbed and yeah they would have been dubbed and they would have been nobody and it would have been nothing whereas because they had a nobody they had to get somebody good and they got her and she's the best bond girl ever yeah i think the thing that works with cast and diana rig as well is that obviously she was huge at the time for the avengers a bit like bringing david hedison back for license to kill because mm. you've got that familiarity with it you feel their fate then when it happens because it's like, you know, that's Emma Peel who gets shot in the forehead at the end. So you, that familiarity sort of makes you more familiar with them, even though you don't know the character yet. I mean, it's like Felix Leiter, a different guy in License to Kill, but um, Living Daylights. But before that, we've not seen him since Live and Let Die. Ironically, the film in which, the book in which that happens to him. Obviously, we don't have Felix Leiter in this film. We have the guy with the curly blonde hair who says, uh, what about a trip to the top? I've seen it advertised, I tell you. There's a sports club up there. I've seen it advertised. <laughs> I love that guy. I've seen it advertised, I tell you. And then um, he gets killed. Uh, yeah, that shot of his dead body. Lazenby's great when he's like, you know, and you know, the bit where he actually fears for his life as well, when he's in a panic 
yeah. after he's escaped. A lot of people shit on that. For like Bond wouldn't be like that when the big bear thing is like, it's like no fuck he would. He's yeah. clinging on by this much. All, all the, the whole like oh Bond wouldn't be like. If, I feel like a lot of those people have only seen Pierce Brosnan and like yeah. Roger Moore films. Like there's loads of scenes in Connery Bond and Lazenby and and again Daniel Craig where it's just he's like completely desperate and he has no other option and he's like pulling the pockets out of his you know he, he yeah. pulls the fabric out of his pockets to use as gloves to climb the thing and all that like and real like diehard vibes like i the films like this i think paved the way for diehard and yeah. you know john mcclain walking around with bloody beat and all that kind of stuff that that's all from this you know it's it's so well and telly savalas is i i feel like blofeld has never been just done quite right with the way they set him up in the early ones but telly savalas is the closest one to perfect blofeld for me yeah I love the idea, the implication that he must have cut his own earlobes off. And and he cuts, he holds the cigarette like upright like that. Yeah. Because Telly Savalas doesn't have a pinky or something like that. Is that I right? think so, yeah. And it's so creepy the way he does it. It's just perfect. Really, really love it. Yeah, I mean. Merry Christmas 007. Best Lex I, I know, again, people like to pick apart the thing. Like, you know, why doesn't Blofeld recognize Bond? Like, Different just, universe. Just go with it that he's in disguise. It's just a really good fucking disguise. Just because he looks like George Lazenby to us doesn't mean he looks like George Lazenby or James Bond to us. Uh, now, hang on a second, Stuart. Are you, trying to, are you trying to tell me that a guy wearing a pair of glasses is supposed to fool anyone? It's supposed to be a disguise. Yeah. Is this the Watch. Wait. Where does it... Stuart, where'd you go? Oh, exactly. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you just got to go with it, with these films. I mean, a couple of films ago, we had a jetpack. Yeah, no, no, no. For, for me, this is one of those examples of where it's like, no, different universe. But no, I, I agree with you. Like that, the, their attitude was probably just go with it. But yeah, for me, it's like no, that this George Lazenby never went to Japan. He never went. He never met Blofeld. You only live twice. Never happened. This follows on straight from Thunderball. And it's weird. Number one for a lot of people, but given the shit it got at the time, well, I don't know if it did get that much shit at the time. I just. Well, yeah, like it, I think it's it, easy to look back on it because he only did the one and then he buggered off. It it underperformed, uh, but like it still did really well. But it underperformed, and then I have heard people say that like throughout the seventies and into the eighties, it was like the answer to a trivia question. It wasn't a film that was beloved at all because it was the one they never really showed as well. Even to the point yeah. where as a child, I didn't know James Bond got married. I assumed when my uh, mum told me that James Bond got married, that she got it mixed up with an episode of Knight Rider. There's an episode of Knight Rider where Michael Knight gets mar uh, married and then his wife gets murdered on his wedding day. Scent of Roses, season four. Yeah. Shit, I know a lot about Knight Rider too. And it was played by David Will David Hasselhoff's actual wife at the time. Yeah, no, like it, it was only on the, when all these sort of books that we have started coming out and they were sort of writing these revisionist essays about how great Honor Majesty's Secret Service came. And then also the advent of home video that people were able to go kind of go back and collect all the films and realize that no, actually that they were doing something here that this is really, you know, this is really, really good. Um, but up until then, like when, when it was just films coming out in the cinema, like it was, it was a, the answer to a trivia question. Yeah. And I mean, like Gene, Gene Siskel and Robert Ebert, Roger Ebert, both just talk shit about it all the time. They're yeah. Like, nope. Sean Connery is the only James Bond. Never say never again. was great. <laughs> I mean, 
fair play to George Lazeby for having the arrogance and confidence to be like, yeah, fuck it, I can do this job. Um, well, I think you could, I would have liked to have seen, I, I'm always torn with, did I want another George Lazenby one? There's a certain magic to his one and done. I'm, yeah, my, my attitude is just, I feel like no matter what would have happened, they would have made Diamonds Are Forever the way it was, and it would have just been shit and yeah. campy and crap. And whether it was George Lazenby or Sean Connery, and I feel like Sean Connery probably being in that probably saved it a bit. Well, yeah, it's either going to confirm that George Lazenby wasn't a great actor, especially if he hasn't got Peter Hunt behind him, because I think Peter Hunt unfairly got blamed for a lot of this as well. And and so, so wrongly so. Like, Peter Hunt is the reason this film is good. Yeah. Like, even the way it's shot is beautiful. Oh, it's one of the yeah. best-looking Bond films. God, they shoot M from all these low angles, and then there's that lovely shot where Bond is thinking about Tracy, and, like, they chose the reflection of the events we've just seen on the on the on the window that he's looking out and it's just a gorgeous gorgeous film to look at compared to any of the other 60s bonds it, it looks so it's yeah. 20 years ahead of any of them um and the dalton films don't look as good as this like this is what i wish they looked like yeah this is peak again it amazes me that they didn't even be like all right it didn't work but look at it yeah totally have you seen diamonds aren't forever the uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents uh... with George Lazenby. Yeah, um, I have. Um, I didn't know about it until Calvin Dyson did an episode of it mm. on his YouTube channel, and then I did go and watch it. It's wonderfully fun. Good fun, but man, George Lazenby's crapping it. Like <laughs> you're kind of like, wow, hmm, this isn't the George Lazenby I remember. I mean, eighties television standard as well, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a fun curio, that and the Man from Uncle episode he was in, Man or movie, Uncle, whichever yeah. it was, which I've seen once but cannot remember much about at all. He drives the DB5, yeah. But, so the, the only Bond actor who hasn't driven the DB5 is Dalton. Did Moore drive it? No, Moore didn't either. Moore drove it in Cannibal Run. Oh, of course he did, yeah. That's where, right. Where when he, he was uh, basically playing James Bond. No, he was, he was playing a man who thought he was Roger Moore who was James Bond. Yeah. It's such a wonderful thing. But yeah, no, cheers for doing that. I really enjoyed it. It was good fun. I mean, yeah, we'll have to maybe go in depth on some of the other Bond films at some point. So. All right, man. Talk to you later. All right. Yeah, and you take care. Bye. That was the James Bond 2023 rewatch ranking. And why not? I'd like to thank Rob for joining me on the episode to talk about the film. Please do check out the show notes for links to where you can find the All-Star Superfan podcast online. At the time of recording, all 25 Bond films are available in the UK on DVD and Blu-ray from MGM. If you'd like to let us know your rankings, you can get involved in the conversation wherever you see this episode on our social media channels. So if you aren't already, give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram, or why not join the Am Why Not group over on Facebook. Not only will we be kept up to date on episodes that are coming up and have the chance to contribute to them, but we also post our picks of three great movies to check out each week on Freeview TV. If you fancy joining us, just search Am Why Not Pod on social media, or check the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and be bothered to do so, please give the episode a share and tell your friends about it. And why not give the series a follow or subscribe over on Acast or wherever you listen to episodes. If you're feeling super generous, we'd be grateful of a rating or review if you have a single or two to spare. Or don't, we're just grateful that you spent the time listening to us. If you missed any Am Why Not episodes so far, you can find them on our podcast channel over on Acast, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, good pods or on our website at hauntednerds.com where I've set up new pages for each episode. In the meantime though, we're back next Tuesday where I'll be joined by Ross Beamish as I take him back to his comfort zone of 1996 to celebrate the 4th of July with Independence Day. But until then, this has been a Nerds Haunted Sales production and I've been Stuart Marine. Thank you for listening and remember, James Bond never has to put up with this sort of shit. Bye for now.